Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and hobby dollars on, and that can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to explore the games that my friends and I have enjoyed playing, to talk about big industry events, and talk to the people that create these games. Now, I've had some big guests on recently, and I've been really excited. But it's about that time of year. I think it's about a 12-month cycle that this this wonderful occurrence happens, that uh, we are joined by... Uh, that's that that old expression. Never meet your heroes. Well, the I met one of my hobby heroes uh, over a curry one night, and it was wonderful. And years and years and years later, after a billion books with his name on the spine or uh, adorn my shelves, uh, he's joining us again this evening. The man, the myth, and the legend, all in one. Rick Priestley, welcome back to Cast Ice. Hi, Brad. It's uh, nice to see you. Hello, world. Uh, does that mean I owe you a curry, by the way, Brad? I don't remember that. No. I, think, uh, I, can't, I... I don't remember who paid for that one. <laughs> Actually, I think Jeremy Vitok paid for that one, so I may owe him oh, a curry. Oh, bless him. Oh, I do love that yeah. guy. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a top top chap, is Jeremy. Uh, and, uh, yes, and, and, a good, and a good curry. Uh, good curry eater as well, as I remember. That's right. I have had he one. Could take, he could take them home. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And I've had one or two tasty beverages with that fine gentleman as well. Oh, good stories sometime to be told. Rick, you have, it, it has been a while since you were on the show. And I know that the last couple times you're on, we talked about both the history of 40K, which again, we're going to talk about a bit today. But we also talked a lot about Warlords of Erewhon because that was your most recent game project that I was aware of. What have you been up to since you were last on? Because I know you've been on a lot of podcasts and you've been doing a lot of interviews uh, in the world of lockdown. You are a very popular person to to speak with. Have you been working on anything else? Uh, personal hobby projects, games, any twinkling in your eye? Uh, yeah, well, well, of course, the last year, year and a half has been um, a little bit strange, hasn't it? Because um, mm-hmm. we've not been able to game face to face quite so much. We've just started here, you know, a little gaming group um, or, or uh, I say quite a big gaming group, really, but which I'm a sort of peripheral part of. We, um, we've just started uh, uh, playing again and we finished off our American Civil War campaign, mm-hmm. which... Um, We'd started before lockdown, you know, before COVID. So it just oh, wow. shows you how long it takes. Yeah, it took, uh, it took a, <laughs> quite a, it was a big gap. But, um, you know, we, we'd finished it. And uh, I have to say that I, uh, I lost spectacularly. I was going to uh, ask. As is always the way, always mm-hmm. the way. Black, black powder. Um, we were, uh, I, I was part of the Confederate uh, army. So I, I feel that there was a historical justification there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we lost because we lost. Um, but, um, yeah, that was great fun over than that, you know, for that whole year, I didn't do a lot. And, um, I kind of got into, um, into just finishing off and, um, uh, collecting new figures for some of my old 1970s armies. So I, I really got into the, uh, putting together old minifigs armies awesome. in a big way, you know, not 1970s stuff. Uh, yeah. So I've been doing that, um, 
which has been interesting. Interesting. So I've been buying stuff mostly off eBay, of course, mm -hmm. and um, stripping, either stripping or overpay. It depends on what it's like. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. you get you get figures that are nearly 50 years or 40 years old, say. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in those days, people didn't bother much with tidying them up. They often got flash on or uh, they're miscasts mm -hmm. or whatever. And you you think, my God, I've got to do something with these. So you end up um, stripping them and rebuilding them and replacing bits and pinning and recarving detail in some cases and all that sort of thing. So it can be quite a lot of work. Um, on all occasions, you get something that's almost perfect, but not too not too thickly painted, mm -hmm. and you can kind of overpaint it, just tart it up. That's right. Rebase. That's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, uh, any ranges mm. in particular? Uh, mini figs. As in, sorry, within the uh, what armies or any model ranges within mini figs? Sorry. Yeah, uh, most uh, ancient, um, nice. mostly the uh, uh, PB series. So it's the uh early to mid 1970s with a little bit of uh, the preceding a series uh, mm -hmm. that's H, H and a series um what's known as the s s range uh s for special which was uh they, they were they kind of replaced the 20 millimeter size figures the minifigs made in the 1960s so early 70s to mid 70s and I kind of lose interest uh, in the later 70s. Minifigs remade a lot of their ranges in the mid to late 70s. And the figures became a lot bigger and chunkier. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and that, uh, they're, they're the ones I'm not really, I, I kind of lose interest at that point. Um, and you can still buy a lot of those figures from um, uh, Caliber Books. So Minch figurines are now owned by Caliber Books, who are based at Eastwood in Nottingham. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, they can still supply a lot of those old, old ranges, including some of the, what they call the classic ranges. The other things I've been collecting have been the science fiction and fantasy ranges from the same period. Nice. Um, yeah, including the very first range, which is available in the UK at least, which is the Minch Figurines Middle Earth or Mythical Earth range, mm -hmm. the ME range, as it's called. Um, and uh, they came out about 1974, 75, I think. And... Um, they're, they're quite commonly available because they were very, very popular in their day. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been uh, I've been sort of uh, repainting and representing those. I've also sculpted a few pieces to go in with it. I thought, I wonder if I can sculpt in the style of Dick Higgs was the sculptor of minifigs. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I can sculpt in the style of Dick Higgs. It, you can't really because Dick Higgs didn't sculpt with putty. He sculpted with um, pewter. So oh, he, wow. Yeah, he took a piece. He took a pewter. Well, he, he would have carved a dolly to start with, mm -hmm. but he, he then took a basic pewter dolly, carved in detail, added detail with a soldering iron, and solder, and then built up the figure that way. And that was how figures were made up until the later seventies. If you remember that, no crazy. figures made. Open, yeah, yeah, all figures were made that way. Um, uh, Peter Gilder at Hinchcliffe, he designed the same way. Uh, uh, you know, soldering pieces together, and um, John Braithwaite at uh, Garrison Miniatures, mm -hmm. he uh, at Greenwood and Ball in, in in the UK. They they were made the same way, and often you could look at them. They're often often engraved. A lot of the detail is engraved in uh, with what must have been a small drill or something. Yeah, so that's how figures were made. So I tried to copy the style, but I'm using putty because yeah. I can't. I'm not going to teach myself to sculpt in 
by by I mean, have you tried soldering lead uh, lead toy soldiers together? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you get you get your soldier. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I have a bit, and you get your soldering iron, and you kind of get very very close to the model, and you touch the model, and it immediately turns into <laughs> molten model. I was going like, to say the whole thing goes molten. Yeah, yeah. That's what happens because met the metal inevitably it transmits the heat instantly almost mm -hmm. it, 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 it just goes that way it's quite it's quite hard to do so you need you need to be very very skilled to do it or practiced at least yeah. and um uh, i say i've not really not really perfected that to any extent um i, I sold well enough to be able to solder a wire dolly together mm -hmm. uh, i i practiced that and i got it really quite good and i said to the twins i'm oh, quite pleased i managed to solder a dolly together you know i know it's nothing to you guys you must have been doing it for like your lifetime mm -hmm. and they looked at me and said rick we don't solder anything together. We twist two bits of wire together. <laughs> that's all. That's all they do. Mm -hmm. And for uh, those wondering, the twins would be the Perry twins, of course. Yeah, the Perry twins. Yeah. So oh, all they're like, yeah, we sculpted all those models at Games Workshop and all the Perry Minches and all those models for Wings Foundry. They twist two bits of wire together. Great. <laughs> I said, how do you how do you actually cope with the um, with the arms? Because you can't really. You got to you know you you make a little crucifix when you solder and. Um, they said, well, you, they don't. Well, they wait until the fig's made, and then they drill through and put the arms in afterwards. You're and I kidding. thought, well, that's mad. <laughs> yeah, but they say that, that way you can get the arms in exactly the right place. Yeah, that's true. Whereas the tendency, yeah, if you make a wire dolly first, which is what everyone does and which is what everyone recommends, mm -hmm. and then you've, you've committed to where the shoulders go yeah. and to where the hips are. And when you make the model... There's a tendency for the the anatomy to get slightly out of kilter with the underlying uh, wireframe, mm -hmm. and if you don't put the arms in until afterwards, you kind of compensate for that. And I thought, well, that's interesting, and it perhaps, yeah, interesting they do do it that way. That's really mm. clever. So I hadn't, thing. yeah. Huh. So you learn a thing or two. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's what I did. so. So I made I made a I had to go making a few models, but I've only had one cast up, which is um, a copy of the man orc figure, but with a bow. They, minifigs never made a bow bowman or bow mm -hmm. orc. Uh, they only made spearmen and axemen and uh, swordsmen. You have to remember in those days, no one made more than one pose of anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, figures for us, what they call sort of a uni pose or a single pose these days. That's but right. that was standard. Unusual and part of the aesthetic, actually. You know, the models supposed to look like that. Well, early uh, Warhammer yeah. models were like that as well, weren't they? Because they were for D and D and for uh, fantasy gaming in general. I, I seem to yeah, remember. Yeah, a lot of them were single figures. Yeah, the the early mm -hmm. samurai range that was at one time part of the Oriental Adventures D and D range that then became a Warhammer range for Oriental Adventures from, from memory. Anyway, there's a lot of single pose, and that's that. And then you make a unit out of that guy. Yeah, I, do you know, I think they that was probably the case just because they only made a limited number of samurai. Right. When it came to um, the Fantasy Tribes range, which I mm -hmm. think they must have done in 82, 83, you know, it's very early when I was there, mm -hmm. um, they immediately started, what the twins would do is that what they would make, let's say, five different poses mm -hmm. in a basic format. Those would be molded. The five figures would be given back to the Perrys, and then they'd convert them. So there mm -hmm. might be five underlying poses, 
but they would then be reconverted. And some of those poses would involve shifting the arms about. Usually they didn't. They'd put a, head, a new head on and um, maybe change a bit of detailing. So you had a, a variety uh, of, of models which were of some basic poses. You can't really do that. When you look at figures, especially if you want them in unit poses, there aren't that many poses. This whole slide, it's one of those things. I get a little bit, I don't say annoyed, but I frustrated sometimes i'm putting units together from plastic kits and there are too many poses in the kit <laughs> right. so the units don't look good so i what i, I actually throw away some, i throw away figures <laughs> okay i'm not using that i'm not using that it's a ridiculous pose i'm using that <laughs> people get horrified at me you know you can sometimes yeah. use bits for conversion but um you want the figures to look as if they're in a in a unit of mm-hmm. true in a formation yeah so they're all doing essentially the same thing not waving their arms and legs around like this are in a disco <laughs> um yeah. which is what you get a lot of these time these days uh and uh so so you know i, I think that back, back in the day they used to make their poses quite um quite quite solid you know they, they all went together quite nicely well yeah. I, I... there you go it occurred to me early on that 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 is how the Perry sculpted because I I was painting a Mordian army for a grand tournament a million years ago, and it was an Imperial Guard army, obviously, where you are painting a crud load of infantry because they were just guys in t-shirts with uh, or in formal suits, I should say, with las guns. Um, and so I realized yeah. once I lined them all up, yep, there's this las gunner is literally the same guy as the Melta gunner with a different head and a different gun. And this is yeah. this guy is the same pose as the flamer guy. And it was once I actually had all the models in front of me and I lined them up to batch paint them, I realized that they were once you d- took the body types into account, you could just batch paint, you know, even though they were slightly different armed and they were quote unquote different models, they were essentially the same yeah. with different arms and different heads. So it was easier to batch paint like that. But it really did occur to me. There's only like five or six models in this range, and they've just and that yeah. kind of opened it up for when I was later trying to do World War II gaming and was trying to build forces out of one or two blisters. You know, if you just take buy an army's worth of two blisters and then you cut and reposition heads and change some weapons and change a couple arms, turns out you can still do an army with some great variety and has that consistency. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and with World War Two, that works very well because you don't—you're not stood in a formation like musketeers, right, or even spearmen or whatever. So you you want that little bit of variation, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Now head swaps are the easiest thing, of course. Yeah. And uh, you know, sometimes you can just bend arms and legs. You can make different poses mm-hmm. by bending things a bit. And you, you find that even back in the day, you know, in the seventies when we were we were gaming, uh, you, you often find people of moved arms and shields about on ancient figures just to give you a little bit of variety um which uh which if you're a collector of old toy soldiers like i am you don't necessarily want to find <laughs> no right <laughs> you stop bending figures around that a lot of figures in those days especially were made out of quite poor quality lead mm-hmm. um and uh tend to be brittle hinchcliffe in particular i don't know if people remember hinchcliffe models it's still it's still available in fact but uh, the old hinchcliffe figures used to be cast in a very poor quality lead and i only found out recently why it's because he used to use old batteries that he'd scab- uh, you know he basically used to buy scrap lead um, oh wow <laughs> so yeah that doesn't sound so uh, necessarily healthy but uh you know toy soldiers right oh no it's perfect 
it's perfectly healthy as long as you don't eat it you know yeah. uh let, let, people get excited about lead well lead, lead is only dangerous if you ingest it yeah exactly um yeah okay and that's potentially a problem if you're going to be de dealing with it in terms of casting because um you get um you use powder when you cast molds that's right and the powder can become infused with the lead oxide and the lead oxide gets in the powders you breathe it in but the worst thing was um smoking people get it on their hands and then when they smoke cigarettes it would oh, in, they would ingest it yeah that was the worst thing because mm. people who we found our casters who smoked uh, routinely failed their lead tests because we had to have regular lead tests against mm. workshop. Um, and if you failed the lead test, I mean, i.e. there was too much, you, 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 there was too much lead in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. You couldn't work. You, you basically were off work for a few weeks, but whilst your lead levels dropped, <laughs> but we, uh, we had to take quite, I say severe, we had to be very careful in terms of people who smoked. You had to say, you have to wash your hands. You have yeah. to, wash. you think they would anyway, but you know, you have to wash your hands. You have to make sure you're, you're not ingesting the stuff. Yeah. Now you but worked as a caster, right? I'm not making that up. Uh, no, I, I worked as a, uh, a mail. I, I did mail order for That's a while. Right. You were a troll. Uh, uh, when I joined. So yeah, I was the primal troll. And um, <laughs> that involved having to do a, a, a bit of certain amount of casting. Yeah. Just to fill out orders. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, we, we only had two, oh, was it three? Two or three working machines any one time. And two or three casters. So what I had to do is wait for them to go on their break or wait for them to go on their lunch. And then I would dash in with a pile of mold and I would just cast up what I needed. Um, so I only ever did casting on that basis. I, I never stood in front of a machine for, for, for eight hours and cast, which is what a caster does. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's actually, in a way, it's different because if you're just casting, let's say, two or three, you want two or three models mm -hmm. to fill out an order. So you've got your mold, but your mold's cold. That's right. Well, the first, the first cast in the cold mold is usually not good. You have to warm the, the mold up. Some people put them in an oven. We, did, we didn't have that. But you, you really have to cast the mold uh, once just to warm it through. Uh, so, so just getting just one model that I might need to fill an order, I'd have to get a mold. I'd have to cast it cold. Take out the 30 figures that I cast, remelt them, oh, no. recast the, into mm. that mold, take out the one figure I needed, that was, I only needed one good figure for my order, and then the others, 29 perhaps, I'd figure out which ones were good and which ones weren't, because it's still only a second cast, right. and take the good ones and put them back into stock, and then put the mold back in the mold rack. Oh. <laughs> so to get one figure, <laughs> I had to do all that. So it's quite a lot of running around, you know. So it was mm -hmm. quite fun. I mean, quite enjoyed it. But you know, it was a lot of work for for one figure. Whereas an order for an ordinary order, I'd just go, yeah, go to the go to the racks, take a figure out, put it in a box, yeah. do the next one, do the next mm -hmm. one. And you could do a you could do an order in ten minutes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, so it's, it just shows you really that you can't. They do time and motion studies and they work out things and, you know, they say, oh, no, you can take, it takes you so long to do this and so long to do that. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, co the cost of a single figure can vary hugely depending on circumstances. That's right. Yeah. When I, uh, when I worked for workshop, because we were, the trolls were front of house. And so I was in yeah. trade sales, promotions, trade sales, uh, accounting, mail order, the rules boys, all of us were 
front of house and with the reception yeah. and you know offices and whatnot. And so we were allowed in the in the warehouse to, you know, if we had to to pick orders, we could walk through. In the break room, you had to walk by parts of the warehouse to get to. Um, and yeah. in, from memory, the toilets. Uh, anyway. But the uh, metal room is that to uh, the uh, place in Baltimore. Yeah, is that the Baltimore HQ? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. But um, they showed us on our tour, on the induction tour. This is, you know, this is where boxes are picked. This is how they do it. And you spend a day, spending an hour or two in all the different departments. And so my my version of the blister, I got to hang out with the blister sisters, where we, you know, took existing models and put them in blisters and packed them and then made sure they all got in the right sleeves and the sleeves got in the boxes and the boxes went on the shelves. And then I spent time with one of the pickers picking the orders and then putting them in orders and sending them out. But mail order was yeah. front and they didn't actually go in the back to pick usually. There were a few yeah. people that did. But as far as the casting department, yeah, they showed you that and said, do not go anywhere near that under the pain of death. Do not touch that. Do not go near that. That is an occupational health and safety nightmare. Do not go. We don't trust you. Stay away. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we are dealing with hot, with molten lead. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, not not the best thing to be uh, to be handling. But yeah. um, Well, yeah, to, to yeah, be yeah, fair, to be... trade sales, we did have a reputation for being cowboys. So yeah. they, there's a good reason for us to stay away from <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I did most of those things as, as well back in the day. You know, I, I helped out with trade orders and mm-hmm. stuff so forth. But, you know, you, you just all mucked in because it was quite in the early eighties. It was such a small operation. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, Rick, the last time you were on, we dug into Rogue Trader and its origins and how you used to play it on John Stollard's floor in uh, at his apartment. And um, we talked about how it was almost a, a role-playing game when it first came out. But then over time, that changed, and the company wanted more of a, a mass battle game. And then eventually, um, over time, I mean, we saw through White Dwarf articles and through compilations like Compendium, Index of Stardes, and other books of the time there were army lists released so there were actual armies that you could play on the tabletop and just the nature of the game it was almost as though the rule book was completely divorced from what the rest of the game was by the time rogue trader ended which sort of opened the door for warhammer 40,000's first ever box game 40k second edition um, and I guess that's uh, the purpose of talking to you today is to sort of dig into those times as well, because the amount of people who've written in to say that they really enjoyed you talking about Rogue Trader has been unbelievable. And a lot of people ask, can you get them to come back to talk about what ha- happened next? So, Rick, can you talk to us a little bit? Let's start out by talking about the philosophy of how 40K shifted from that role-playing-esque game to the army battle game that we know today. Now, in in second edition, we're still talking about small forces compared to what we see today. But compared to where things started in the game originally, they were a lot bigger, weren't they? Um, Yeah, in many cases they were. I mean, the original game played very well with, let's say, a dozen figures aside, up to about two, two, three dozen. the the change really 
it wasn't necessarily driven by um, any commercial kind of considerations. It was what players were doing. What we 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 found that people wanted to play the bigger games, um, and the rule system and and a lot of the supplementary material that had been done, um, not necessarily always by me, but uh, it. it it didn't really work well with bigger games, but people wanted to play bigger games. Mm -hmm. So the games were getting to be very, very slow and cumbersome. And uh, the, the so that that neatening up of the game, second edition, it really just it just represented the game as it was being played at the time. Really, right. it, it it didn't do anything terribly radical um, in terms of the game play. Mm -hmm. It just uh, it, it just reconsolidated what was what was already actually out there. Um, there was some I think there were some minor rule changes, pro probably to make it a little bit more focused on mm -hmm. playing those sort of games. Um, and we dumped a lot of the role play esque stuff, um, or rather I did. Um, yeah, um, it it really. Uh, it, it really fell in with the um, move from the uh, Brian Ansell-led period Games mm. Workshop to the new management buyout Tom Kirby-led Games Workshop. Mm -hmm. So that happened in uh, 1991, 1991, I think. Uh, Brian basically sold up. Uh, and he had been uh, a very hands-on in terms of the creative part of the mm -hmm. company uh so when road trader took off and became very successful brian pitched in with some of his own ideas and some of the things he was interested in and he used the road trader the success of road trader really to shoehorn in some things he was interested in or which he felt were uh, uh you know uh, interesting mm -hmm. from a game's point of view um but when we moved to the uh, 1991 and Brian sold up, you know, the new boss wasn't at all interested in um, the, 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 the kind of tabletop wargaming aspect of gaming. He, he was interested in gaming. And Tom used to, um, he used to work for uh, TSR UK. Mm. He was the boss of TSR UK, I think, or at least their, their general manager. And he um, was a role player, really, of, of old. I think he had been sort of a toy soldier gamer in his youth, but uh, he hadn't really any uh, conscious expertise at it. Um, and he was a board game player. So he, he, he kind of pushed at um, some of the board games that we did, including the re reissue of Talisman. Mm -hmm. What a great game. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure the re reissue was uh, uh, quite the classic that the original was. No, the black but, box um, is the way to go. Mm, yeah. Uh, but the uh, uh, though the reissue does tell you something a little bit about what we were doing at the time. That was trying to just do more product. Um, so we had a uh, we had a very strong commercial motivation behind us when Tom bought the company because all of a sudden we were in debt to about the tune of ten million pounds. And given Ooh. that the company was turning over about ten million pounds at the time, it wasn't big uh, by mm. today's standards. Um, so we had to uh, we had to actually turn um, we had to grow the company just to make sure we had enough profit to pay the uh, venture capitalists off. So there was an element of 
this is real. You know, this is get this is where it gets real. Mm-hmm. Whereas when Brian owned the company, essentially the profit went in. Well, I don't say went into Brian's pocket. It sounds a bit unfair. The the but the profit was it, 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 the profit was profit. Yeah. Because uh, he he owned the company. He bought mm-hmm. it off Stephen Ian, possibly for about a million pounds. I think I don't know to be sure, but that's my estimate. Uh, you know, it's all been paid off. It was all good. So so you know, when you're owning a company that's turning over 10 million pounds and, uh, and earning a million pounds profit that's a million pounds in your pocket if you want by the time it sold it that million pounds was going to venture capitalists and there was no money yeah for for anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> let alone for expanding the business because you want to reinvest if you want to obviously brian particularly want to invest in games workshop because why would you when you're in that position, why would you spend that money making it bigger when you can just take the money? Whereas um, Tom needed to make it bigger, so he needed to re- to invest and so on and so forth. So when it came to sorting out the product offer, which became my responsibility, I, I was part of the management buyout, um, which meant that I owned a slight slice of the company at the time, or rather I had an option on it and rather a small slice it was too. But nonetheless, me and John Stellard were part of that buyout, and he was responsible for making a sales plan, which involved growing the number of uh, shops in particular, mm-hmm. as you perhaps remember. Oh, yeah. And uh, and I was responsible for essentially the product. So I would come up with a plan for what product we were going to do. I mean, we hadn't necessarily done this in the past. We'd just done stuff on a whim. Um, or at least it felt that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but uh, we had to come up with a plan. And we had to start being very organized. And I came up with a plan for our product ranges, which included board games and it included uh, big hobby games and it included what we called sort of, sort of like ancillary or one off games. Um, at the time, we were quite ambitious, really. In fact, looking back, we were astonishingly ambitious. But mm-hmm. um, my main aim was to have Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000, which were the two things I both knew about, had a passion for, and thought we were going to be our big commercial drivers. Uh, and they already were to a large extent. So that wasn't, you know, wasn't a brilliant insight. It was just the common sense. Yeah. Um, and my uh, uh, first thing I did was set about representing those games. And I did the first, the first one was Warhammer. I took the model off what we'd done for Epic, which is that big box. Mm-hmm. Space Marine box. Oh, yeah. Big box full of plastic toy soldiers. So good. The rules all in one box and uh, accessible. So accessible to someone who was um, not already a hobbyist or was on the fringes and wanted to get into it. Um, A lot of what had been done for Rogue Trader by this time was only accessible if you'd already already kind of bought into it mm-hmm. it was just there was such a massive product line and it was so wayward it was all over the place and glorious in its way mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know i think we had three books on orcs uh, none of which really were, no were, were anything big source books in three different formats i hasten to add yes i recently tried to use them to make a force to play rogue trader mm, yeah <laughs> well you couldn't you know, just, that, that was that, that was very very much brian ansell that was how he approached these things he, he liked the glorious and the and the, uh, the, the 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 detail and the random generation and the mm-hmm. uh, the character of it. I don't think he ever played a game with those rules. You know, <laughs> Brian didn't play games. So you have to remember that. 
I didn't that know he that. had a very strong idea of what of what game should be that he wasn't going to play. <laughs> That's right. And, and he didn't even write the books, really. What he did was he dictated them into a machine uh, in a rather loose way, or explained what he wanted in a loose way, and then someone else wrote them up. And Nigel Stillman, in that case, and it was it was a very hard job, one I strenuously tried to avoid when I was there. <laughs> Uh, which is why I didn't do any of the, if you look at all the things that Brian did, the only one thing I did uh, with him was um, the last Realm of Chaos book. And that's because it had failed to be produced for about three or four years because people had been overwhelmed by it. Mm-hmm. And I only did it uh, on the um, on the uh, condition I got Carl Blanche to rewrite it, which is what I did. <laughs> so I kind of I tried to respect what was there already, mm-hmm. but I rewrote it. I wasn't going to be, you know, I wasn't going to be anyone's amanuensis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just too difficult. Uh, but that's but anyway. That that's one of the reasons why the third, the, the first edition was such a mess at the end. It was yeah. just lots of people pitching in and lots of ideas being realised, often very quickly, mm-hmm. um, but not very cogently and not with a common purpose in mind. Mm-hmm. So by the time that I got the chance, you know, and Brian gone and he he gone to the west uh, uh, to the uh, yeah, to the West Indies, I think, to uh, be a tax exile. Uh, and uh, we, uh, so we had the job of basically, I don't say rebuilding the company, but taking the great foundations that were there mm-hmm. and building it into something that was a solid commercial venture that could pay its bills, grow, and earn us all a living. Because, you know, in these days, those days, the idea of earning a living making games and playing toy soldiers was still laughable. Yeah, was. My parents yep. were still saying, when are you going to get a proper job? You know? mm-hmm. uh, and I was running the studio by then. You know? <laughs> That's 60 staff, you know. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't that well paid. Um, it, it really wasn't. And the as I say, nowadays, it, there are universities that do courses on games design and people go into games design as a, from the computer design angle i think but that certainly wasn't the case then it was a, it was still a very much an amateurish thing in fact uh we still pretty much even then even up until the very early 90s it was quite common for games to be designed fundamentally in your own time you know uh not necessarily at work you do a lot of the games design and play, get, certainly the playtesting was all done uh, in your own time. It was seen as being your hobby. Um, so, but anyway, I um, in a way, I, I guess, yeah, I guess it is a hobby, right? But I mean, if we think is, back, yeah, yeah. if we think back, I was just going through the original box sets that I bought as a kid before I got the second edition Warhammer 40k box. And the first yeah. one, I believe, was Space Hulk, then Adeptus Titanicus, and then Space Marine. And so I guess yeah. I owned three core games before I ever got to second edition. I, I didn't even remember those existed yeah. until you mentioned them. Yeah, well, Space Hulk was a game that was... Uh, yeah, that, I mean, in many ways, that was the format, that big box mm-hmm. with a, um, uh, with a uh, uh, plastic figures in it. We started to do that for specific games like Space Hulk in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. But um, I think Space Marine, uh, the epic scale game, mm-hmm. that was the, the one that sort of showed the way, really, because it, uh, I think Adeptus Titanicus, perhaps, uh, before it, um, 
it showed the way because you could only do those games in that format. That's right. And so we started to do a big box, plastic toy soldiers, and what we called an SRA1 sheet of card. The SRA1 sheet of card was often counters, but it could equally well be boards mm-hmm. like Space Hulk. Or buildings Pre- like uh, Adeptus buildings, Titanicus. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Adeptus yeah, Titanicus used um, styrofoam? Foam. Yeah. Star- yes. The yeah, expanded polystyrene. That was a little venture we did with a packaging company that uh, thought, oh, you know, we can make models out of this stuff. As mm-hmm. Again, it was Brian. He's a very, very, uh, very innovative chap and very keen to spot these things. Yeah. We also made a, a fortress for um, uh, Warhammer called Mighty Fortress. That's right. Almost impossible to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost impossible to make these things because when you make packaging, you don't worry about the odd corner being knocked off. Mm-hmm. When they tried to make these things as models, y- they were throwing away like half of what they made. Yeah. Because uh, they just weren't up to scratch. Well, no so one told me really the styrofoam see. melted if you spray painted it when I first tried oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, certainly does. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> you find out these things, don't you? Yes, you do. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, so there'd been this move towards these big boxes in another format, but I don't think there was any real sense in which Warhammer or 40k were perceived as being suitable for that. Mm. They were always books plus. So, so. But I, but I just saw that as being the way forward, you know, big presentation box that basically yeah. had everything you needed to play. Um, and we invested quite what was a lot at the time in the studio. We invested a lot of money in the to- uh, in tooling. And it was very much a statement of faith from Tom because, you know, the money wasn't, you know, it was needed for other things like expanding the shops and staff and uh, uh, eventually investing in um, other, other, other companies, you know. Mm-hmm. We uh, uh, like Fran- in France and Spain and Italy and so on. So um, uh, it, it was, as I say, quite a statement. But we had to cut everything to the bone. Everything was mm-hmm. done on the cheap. It really was um, compared to what had been done in the late 80s, where we'd had much more resources. Yeah, I was going to um, say what came in the Space Marine, epic Space Marine box, was epic. Yeah. Like it was that was a heavy box. It had so many things in it. And then to compare that to second edition 40K, which, don't get me wrong, is still one of my favorite box sets of all time. You, The Dreadnought that the Orcs got in that box was a little piece of cardboard that had a picture of a Dreadnought on it that you stood up, which reminded me of Blood Bowl Edition (laughs) 1. Yeah, well, actually, that's what it was. It it was a reissue. In in many ways, it was going back to how Warhammer was in second edition. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which was the sort of first edition built up. And it, you know, it's a card standees and everything. Yeah, um, yeah we had to do that because um, we couldn't afford to do the... Uh, we couldn't afford to make more than one tool, but we could afford to make quite a big tool. Yeah. So um, we, what we did was, I think it was a 16 or a 32 impression tool for the Space Marines and the Gretchen. Uh, it, I think it had Gretchen in it, didn't it? Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so we made a, as big a tool as we could, which was expensive. And it ran on a big machine. It was expensive. But when you're doing large quantities of something, it works out cheaper. Yeah. So they were made. It was all thought through, which had never been in the past particularly. Um, it was thought through to be done as, as uh, cost effectively as we could for a large run. Uh, and meanwhile, I, I, you know, I set about redesigning the game. And I think, again, the game, uh, Warhammer, and I think then 40K. Warhammer was 1992, and I think, 40k was 93 mm-hmm. uh, and the 
uh, we couldn't afford to put colour inside. You know, we, we were oh, yeah. printing black and white. So I kind of represented it that way. But, it, you know, I, and then we reused colour sections out of White Dwarf. Um, but it worked and it worked because it was very focused. Mm -hmm. um, I had that big box plus a range of army lists, the yeah. army books. Yeah, that was something we talked about doing when Brian was running the company and Brian wouldn't let us do it. I think he saw it as being, um, I don't know, too, it, perhaps too gamey and too competition gamey. Mm -hmm. But I saw them as being source books as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so 96 pages with a, a good wadge of background and detail in, mm -hmm. as well as the armulus and the special rules. And the great so, art by Mark Gibbons. And I mean, there was just so much in those books. Yeah. They were the gold standard of Codex for forever. I mean, there was the shift in third edition to go to almost the pamphlet size Codex. And that came from that came from sales. Uh, and I hated it yeah. with a passion. Oh, actually. it was awful. Uh, yeah. No, I thought it was a complete betrayal of what the, what the company was about, to be mm -hmm. honest. I really didn't like them. But, you know, what can you do? Times change. Yeah. They wanted to do to make stuff that was cheap. You know, so they wanted stuff to tell us a price. Whereas to my mind, the books had to be source books, mm -hmm. not gaming, not sheer, just gaming information. And yeah, it could be that that was what Brian was very, in a visionary way that he, he had. Perhaps that was why he did it. Mm. <laughs> he, said he, he could see that on the cards. You know, the minute the sales guys get in, in charge, they'll dump all the character and they'll dump all this stuff that has no tangible value because it doesn't allow them to sell it. Yes, it does have tangible value. It's the thing that makes you want it. It's, uh, yeah. I know. Well, anyway. as, the, as a guy who worked in sales when third edition came yes. out, let me just evil, say, evil that sales. was a hard sell, was selling those thin pamphlet codexes when everyone yeah, wanted the glorious second edition ones. I know. And, that, and yet, that was what sales clamored for. And I couldn't. And at the, at the time, I got out, outvoted, outmaneuvered. You know, I didn't want to do it. Um, so it, it's a classic case of sales should not get what they ask for. They should get what Amen. they get and be damn grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ooh, that's quite all right. I had John Matthews on the show recently, and uh, we we did have quite the chat uh, on and off air about uh, the joy of sales. So um, it it uh, yeah. You got to pay the bill somehow, I suppose. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the, the temptation when you're doing product is to think in the long term. Yeah. Because you, you always got in mind what you're going to do next. You're often making what you're going to do next and then thinking mm -hmm. about what you're going to do after that. Exactly. Whereas in sales, you don't have a long term. You only have a short term. Mm -hmm. It's what can you sell today? What What's your figures this week? So, the, you know, and I always say, well, you have to you have to be careful because if you don't have a short term, you sure as hell don't get a long term. You know, if the company goes under tomorrow, it ain't going to be in next year, is it? So, um, true. You know, there, I, I do understand, <laughs> but at the same time, it was very frustrating. Well, uh, oddly enough, those, yeah. uh, I was going to say, those 96 page books that we did for both Warhammer and 40k, you know, the Codex and mm -hmm. the Army books, they were still used at Games Workshop. Even though those other books, you know, the, the, the 50 page or 48 page short ones had come out, all the people doing background and writing mm -hmm. stuff used the first edition because they were better. That's right. <laughs> it was all in those books. 
So they they were the standard reference even into later editions for, for internally, mm-hmm. even for later editions of the um, uh, of the game. Which is why Which when fourth and fifth edition, when everyone starts talking about, oh, it's going back to the old days, and look at it, it's a reference to something that wasn't in you know anything but the second edition book. It's because they were reading the second yeah. edition book when they wrote it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, they 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 used it as a jump off point. They did more and more and more new stuff, mm-hmm. uh, I believe. I uh, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, yeah. No, the second edition background work was certainly the um, defi- became the defining background work for uh, uh, 40k. And of course, I I wrote the the background book for the. Um, second edition game. In fact, I wrote all three books. In fact, mm-hmm. so so I did. Um, you know, I did uh, preserve the uh, the integrity of what was there already. And to some extent, I, it was a little over-explained, but it got to that point where I needed to explain it a little bit more to stop it wobbling about. Yeah, you know, to stop people writing off-piste. Uh, so it did get it did get a little bit overly explained, perhaps, but uh, nonetheless. It was the same, um, and I and I worked in a, a lot more references to the past as well, in, uh, including the Age of Apostasy and things like that. Yes. A lot of which I had a, I had in my head, you know, I had ideas about how it would all pan out, and how it panned out wasn't all, uh, in reality. When they started doing the, the Horus Heresy, for example, I didn't particularly like how they took the direction of that. I thought it was rather crass, uh, but nonetheless, people like it. <laughs> yes, they <laughs> do. How many New York Times selling best books are in that series at this point? Yeah, and yet, yeah, um, yeah, I believe you did the the history for a lot of that in uh, the that Space Marine box that we've been talking about all night. I kind of covered the um, the essentials, yeah, uh, and um, some of the fiction got written up by uh, Bill King very mm-hmm. early on. Um, but I, I, I always imagined that the world of ten thousand years before the present had a different technological base. Was slightly, you know, didn't didn't just look the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that wasn't convenient from a uh, from the point of view of, uh, uh, of selling toy soldiers. And similarly, the that kind of obsession with the emperor as God mm-hmm. was something I saw as having evolved, not something that was there from the start. Exactly. It kind of like evolved. And the space Marines, because they evolved from a different point from the Adeptus Terror, had a different aspect, a different way of looking at the uh, of, of their founder, the emperor, that was, um, I don't know how I would put it, but in, in a religious sense, it, it was it's far more far more um, rooted in the past. It, I'd, I'd make the comparison perhaps between Catholic and Protestant, but of course mm. Catholic and Protestantism, those that rift mm-hmm. only goes back five hundred years. That's right, not ten thousand years. Nope. <laughs> and, and and even the Great Schism in the Byzantine Church goes uh, between the Byzantine and the Catholic, Catholic and the Orthodox Church. Yeah. That only goes back to what I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's seven, seven or eight hundred AD. It's about yeah. there, isn't it? Um, so that only goes back twelve, thirteen hundred years, mm-hmm. more, just over a thousand years. Yeah. But we're talking ten thousand. You know, it's it's like uh, it, yeah. there's a different. It, it doesn't even it doesn't even 
compare. I mean, even if you go back to ancient Egyptian civilization, you're talking 5,000 years ago, and mm -hmm. that's 3,000 BC was just barely, yeah, that's Neolithic, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 10,000 years, you're talking the last ice age. <laughs> Right. You're talking Neanderthals and mammoths, you know. That's the. And I wanted to give the history of 40k that breadth of time. Mm -hmm. So within that 10,000 years, there would be periods of utter anarchy when the emperor perhaps was out completely out of phase. There was nothing, um, and uh, and uh, you don't even have that. Um, massive imperium what you have or individual feudal states growing and reassessing mm -hmm. and you know i wanted something that gave us a lot of variety for gaming but what we actually got as far as i can see is same no variety or yeah. same all the way through Ten thousand years there you go praise the emperor uh, <laughs> and i thought that was uh, i just thought it was a bit shoddy yeah well, well it didn't give you the opportunity to tell you stories you know the stories about how the Martians grew up separately and how they evolved that te technological society. Still waiting um, for that. How, yep. uh, yeah. Well, I think it just all got rolled into one as far as I can see. It just becomes a... It, a, a lot of the modern 40K relationships between these organizations remind me of the relationships between um, uh, characters in a lot of modern... Um, uh, sort of venture TV, mm -hmm. where there's always one who's slightly mardy and doesn't obey, or doesn't obey orders, and you know the, the military commanders are snipey at each other. <laughs> you, yeah. know, you think no no military organisation acts like that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> people are cold, cold, and know what to do. It's, uh, and and uh, anyway, you know, rant over. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Look, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, was it 10,000 years and you only get one new brand of Space Marine armor? Um, so I, I well, have had... It did evolve quite a bit through that. Yeah. yeah. I did have a couple of questions that people wanted me to ask. One, the Rainbow Warriors of uh, the Space Marine chapter from Rogue Trader seemed to disappear. Um, what was the inspiration behind those guys? The, the, the ship called the Rainbow Warrior. No, the... Oh, was it? Yeah, the, the, the Greenpeace. Oh, Greenpeace. Yeah, that's the right. Ecological organization mm -hmm. that uh, took great delight in taking old whaling ships and and, and repainting them in rainbow colours, mm -hmm. and then harassing whaling ships, you know, awesome. harassing whalers. Um, th there was a, an incident in um, particularly near New Zealand, I think, mm -hmm. where they'd um, uh, been, I think they'd been boarded by New Zealand special forces. And, uh, and I don't know if they've been sunk, but certainly been capped. You know, they, they'd been anyway. Anyway, this is in the news at the time. So mm -hmm. when it came to doing space marine chapters, many of which are gags, um, <laughs> the Rainbow Warriors was a homage to the Rainbow Warrior, the ship that was the anti-whaling ship owned by Greenpeace. I'm sure mm -hmm. if you Google it, you'll find it. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the badge just became, you know, like a rainbow. So it was. Yeah. It, that was what it was. It is a nod to that um, ecological. Uh, pioneers of the day, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I think we can. Do, I, I put it on record. I think we can live without whaling, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, so a certain amount of sympathy for it, um, if not necessarily for um, um, anarchy on the on the high seas. Exactly. Um, uh, but that's what it was. I, th I, yeah, I think. I think what happened was it got. Blow I think it got. 
I think they mined it. I think the special forces mined it and sank yeah. it or something. Wasn't it French it, special it, it, forces? Yeah, it might, well, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. They're, they're rather gung-ho at that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I honestly can't remember, but uh, it, it, but that was what it was a homage okay. to anyway, and uh, mm -hmm. hence Rainbow Warriors. There was no, it wasn't anything else. Now I don't know. What, I think people dropped it because it was felt to be silly. Yeah. Uh, but then a lot of the other ones struck me as being rather silly. Some of them were <laughs> deliberately silly. I mean, you know, even Space Wolves. Space yeah. Wolves. It's wolves in space. It was. It was a <laughs> little bit. It was deliberately a little camp, you know, yeah. over the top, and they yeah. all were. Uh. Blood angels, dark angels, all the angels. Well, you you spoke well, the just, last I, time yeah. you were on that it, a lot of those uh, original Space Marine chapters um, sort of tied back to your interests in uh, the church and history and looking at um, you know actual angels and how all that worked worked yeah, together little, and you incorporated of, that in. It, yeah, yeah, sort of sort of esoterica and a little bit of um, mm -hmm. sort of theosophy and that sort of thing, just to give them that sense of a mystic organization like the templars exactly you know the knights templar it just gave them that sort of feel and i thought calling them the knights templar was a little bit too obvious and a bit crass you know <laughs> and now we have the black templars there they have the black templars and go oh, yeah okay <sighs> yep well uh, and we also and i want to make sure that i clarify this because somebody asked me to ask you this but i'm pretty sure we covered this last time you were very careful when you were setting out a lot of the history and the setting of Rogue Trader, um, which then followed through to later iterations, especially since, as you said, people were using a lot of the source material from Rogue Trader in second edition in much later editions um, because third edition yeah. was almost skipped, um, that you left doors from, from, from time to time where you left uh, a door open to yeah. explore and you, you left little mysteries yeah. in to keep the fans guessing or yeah, roads well, that, to go that's later. That's my general approach to world building. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the best way to do world building. Never close doors and uh, leave doors open. So, uh, you know, little references can become uh, major major things if, if you mm -hmm. somebody picks up on them. Well, the um, two missing and, uh, Space yeah. Marine chapters of the thing that I was asked to ask you, and I said, I, we, I think we've covered that already. That was just an open door. Quite possibly, it's just an open door. Um, and I, I always thought it would be a mistake to try and explain what those were. Right. They are the equivalent of they're the equivalent of the three uh, uh, lost legions as mm -hmm. of Augustus. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the three legions that were lost on the Teutoburger Wall. I can't remember which ones they were now. 16, 17, 18, it's, 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 it's something like that. Yeah. And they were never reformed um, because uh, uh, because they were considered. You know, that was almost like as a Say, damning their memory, but it was like the, the loss of them was a permanent mark. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they weren't necessarily um, struck from history, but you get that thing where emperors were um, damned in their memory. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they would they almost be expunged, um, so their records would be changed, their statues would be pulled down and defaced, usually. And in ancient Egypt, you get the same thing where pharaohs mm -hmm. uh, were, were taken out of history. In fact, it's one of the things that makes it quite difficult to, to assemble a proper king list in ancient Egypt is that sometimes uh, a, a pharaoh who succeeded uh, an enemy would pull down all his monuments and, and carve out all of his all of his name cartouches would be removed. And... Even on... Um, yeah, even even on sarcophagi and things like that. That's right. It's why sometimes when you you find you do find them, and they're, they're often in places where they're just inaccessible, uh, and so on. And it was that it's just that concept. Yeah. So those two Space Marine chapters had been removed. 
and it was not perceived as being a uh, an attempt to completely remove them from history because their num numbers would remain. Mm -hmm. So you'd always know that they were there. Uh, and it, that's almost like a, um, a little bit of, how can you put it? It's almost like a forgiveness. Mm -hmm. He's saying, well, you've done this terrible, terrible bad thing. We don't know what that bad thing was. Terrible bad thing. And we're going to completely, that thing's so bad, people must not know about it. If they knew about it, <laughs> mm -hmm. it would cause serious harm in, in, in and of itself. So all memory of that thing must be removed. But because something happened at the end, you did good. There was good done along the way. Yeah. You know, your achievements must count for something. So your number will remain. So people will always know you were there. But what you did, what happened, can never be known. And that was the, the idea. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, it kept me as a teenager reading books over and over again, looking for every little reference to them. Um, yeah. Now I did but have you a. Could say, you could again? take that into account. You could say you could go back and say, put it into the into this into the uh, voice of a scribe or something, and say, but what mm -hmm. what of these men? We know nothing of them. And so the, the guy goes, and then tell that story as I've just told it, and say, well, we never know. And then, mm -hmm. and then the scribe being slightly unsatisfied and digging around and finding the odd thing, but it would have to be the odd thing, you know, yeah. just points of detail within that story. I did have another question that I was asked to ask you, and it's going to sound very strange after the where we just went, but shock attack guns. I was asked to ask you, where did they come from? Is that a, I mean, getting that, the snotling up your pant leg, is that a... Oh, that's um, Brian. That's, yeah, I was oh, like, that, that sounds Brian. like Brian. That's Brian. <laughs> that's Brian. <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and and um, I quite enjoyed writing all that up and everything like that. <laughs> and it's quite fun. You know, you get into that zone and you write it up. But yeah. that's that was... Brian tended to have a little bit of a scatological sense of humour, and you mm -hmm. know, so the the idea of the snotling going uh, being projected inside the armour, and then the uh, and uh, immediately finding themselves terrified, so terrified they lose control of their bowels. Yeah, was, uh, that, that, that's that's just Brian all over. It's, it's, it's brilliant. A, but uh, you know, there you go. It is quite funny. And the, all the other uh, very strange weapons that the orcs had, you know, the. Uh, the ones that create, uh, I can't, can't remember how they work now. This all, but all that, all that zap wacky guns, work. the giant rockets. Yeah. 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 That was all like, Brian saw that as being a sort of characterful part of what mm -hmm. walks were about. Uh, and a lot of it was retained over in second edition and, uh, and subsequently. That's right. Um, but there was too much. It, it was typical of Brian that because he came into it from a role playing angle and was quite obsessional about the detail. You'd work out too much. So three books on orcs, for example. Mm -hmm. It was just too much. It's like the whole world was encapsulated within orcs. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, and there were army lists within orcs. You had blood axes, goths, snake bites. I mean, yeah. bad moons. They're just, yeah, and more. But and he, he also came up with this concept about orcs being um, half vegetable or half yes. fungus. And, and reproducing like as fungoid. I, he, Brian came up with that. And the reason why he came up with it was because he really didn't, I mean, it, it, hard to believe as it may be, he, we always took a very moral attitude towards both violence and particularly sex, sexual violence in particular. And there was a tendency in D&D modules sometimes to talk in terms of um, sexual violence, like orcs, orcs and humans. So you have half orcs who are the, you know, and so on and so forth. Oh, and of Brian course, very much yeah. said, there are no such things as half orcs because I don't want to imply 
that there is any kind of sexual relationships between orcs and humans that may be less than consensual. Um, oh, that's and, wild. Uh, yeah. So there so were never any half orcs in, in 40k, and, and he and he came up with this concept of orcs being physio physiologically different. Um, uh, that I thought was quite clever. That is um, clever. But what, what I did find a bit strange about it was that all orcs were essentially asexual mm -hmm. or provisionally male, but you know, because they always behaved as if they were male, mm -hmm. but they were essentially asexual. And when they reached a certain uh, degree of um, uh, either size or, or status in the society, they developed individually sexual characteristics, male or female, and then disappear into the woods. Um, and small orcs would, or baby orcs would be just snotling type things would be produced. I just found this concept of Uglug the fearless and Grashenak the merciless suddenly deciding that they had the hots for each other <laughs> a little bit weird. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, I, oh my, as a kid, look, I've, I, always I've always liked you. I, I know Grashenak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I slightly yeah. rewrote it to remove that personal context uh, yeah. and made it a little bit more. Um, a little bit more fungoid and a bit less, uh, yeah. uh, a bit less about uh, warlords suddenly de developing a, a passion for each other. Right? So I get rid of that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that did, that idea of the orcs being funguses and the whole thing being um, a uh, sort of a, a quasi, uh, uh, what do you call it? Almost like a zootype, an animal mm -hmm. type that's half fungus, half 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 half. Animal, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, was was really quite a nice concept, and uh, uh, and we did continue to use it. Although I did, uh, I yeah. did, I did love that as a kid. I thought that was great, but then I was very confused when Orc, in a, what was it? Here we go. I think had the Orc yeah. Gene Stealer hybrids, uh, and I went, wait yeah. a minute, how did the Gene Stealers and fungus? Yeah. I don't, I don't get that one, but yeah, yeah, quite. It just shows you there was a certain amount of uh, one from column A, one from column B going on. And it was typical of Brian that he would do that. Everything would get mixed up and everything would get used. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he did the um, whole, the, the Tyranids were, the original Tyranids were my idea. And mm -hmm. I, I I kind of came up with that. But the way in which they became uh, an army and the background behind them and the incorporation of the gene stealers into the Tyranid story, mm -hmm. that was done by... Um, uh, it was sort of Brian, but I think it, it kind of came about with the Space Hulk game, but Brian then developed it. Yeah. He came up with this idea that the Tyranids were going to be moving through space at sublight speed and were a terrible threat that was going to destroy the universe in the end. And I sat down and I worked out how long it would take them to destroy the universe working at sublight speed. And it was it was quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, millions of years, you know. Yeah. <laughs> They're not much of a threat, Brian, you know. <laughs> but there you yeah. go. The Eventually they will be, but we got a couple of years. I do, yeah, I do well, remember that second edition Tyranid book. Like people yeah. have, I've heard people say that the second edition Tyranids are cartoony. They're not scary. Um, if anything, they look silly, which I don't necessarily agree with. But if you read the words of that book and you looked at the art that went along, which sort of, I think most of those pictures were by John Blanche and uh, Mark Gibbons. They were terrifying. Yeah. Oh my God. Like reading that army yeah. book gave me nightmares. It was brutal. Well, yeah, well, it was. But you have to remember, we, we, we were a bit low on sculpting resources because mm -hmm. um, we were starting to, we, we only had, well, let me think, might have been half a dozen sculptors. 
I've only ever had half a dozen sculptors, really. Um, you know, uh, some came and some went, but um, I think by the time we were doing second edition, Bob Naismith wasn't there, and, he, and he's a one-man toy soldier factory. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd left to do, uh, to, I think, mostly work in the plastics industry. Um, and uh, Nick Bibby wasn't there because he'd left to be a freelance um, uh, large figure sculptor. Um, he uh, developed an allergy to uh, the materials we used. He couldn't, so he couldn't design toy soldiers anymore. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and then nowadays he, he does large-scale bronze sculpture. Anyone interested who doesn't know, look up Nick Bibby sculptor, and you, you'll find he does large bronzes, including a fantastic bear, like a Kodiak bear, which is life-size, uh, and I think it's uh, it's, it's at a um, a university campus in uh, Canada, I think. Brilliant. Um, I think there are two of them, but they're fantastic. You know, he's a he's a, he's just a fantastic sculptor. Um, but he, he wasn't there anymore, and so we were down to um, uh, you know a limited number of sculptors, and we were tra- we were trying to train new guys up, but mm-hmm. we weren't having much success. These days, there's so many sculptors, it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But in those days, there wasn't, there weren't. And um, yeah, we, we we so we tried to get new people on board, um, and I think that was probably at the period when we were at our most stretched. So a lot of those models would have been designed by um, sculptors who were perhaps not ideally suited to doing them. And I think Kevin Adams made quite a few of the early Tyranids, and Kevin's stuff always looks a bit cartoony. You know, he, he did orcs and goblins. Yeah, but his and orcs if, and if goblins Kevin made are any... iconic. Oof. Yeah, so well, they became iconic, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, he 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 developed that style, and that was what he did. Um, still does that he, he now, doesn't he? Something. He still does it now. Yeah, yeah. to be fair, he does, and, uh, and and very nicely too. Yeah, but if he tried to do something else, it tended to look like an awkward goblin. <laughs> you know, yep. he, he was he made some humans as well, but they they kind of looked a bit like awkward goblin, uh, and the Perrys could knock him out. But you know they yeah. could only do so much, and they they were doing the um, they did the Imperial Guards, for example, and they uh, did those unbelievably so they, well. Yeah, but very fast, um, mm-hmm. uh, and to some extent that limits what you can have in the armies um, or the variety of types, uh, uh, and 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 so on. And I can't, I don't, I don't really remember who made a lot of the uh, uh, Tyranids, but I'm guessing that uh, I'm guessing it would have been um, Kevin. Because they look a bit Kevin-y, yeah. some of those early ones. Look, um, I, I had a Tyranid my... army. I loved it. Um, sorry, I wasn't trying to imply they weren't great models. Mm, um, sure, one of my first uh, second edition armies. Oh, I think I had all the second edition armies now that we're mentioning it. Um, I definitely had Tyranids. I loved them. Yeah, they, they're an interesting army. And um, I can't remember who wrote the army, but was it... Uh, it might have been... Um... It might have been oh, Andy Chambers. It it could have been. It wasn't wasn't me. I, I didn't do it. Um, I did the first one. What was that? Space. I did the sp- Space Marines. I did the Space Wolf one. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did the Orc and Goblin one. I think. Uh, I, you know, I just can't remember. I mean, so you get so mm-hmm. you write you write so many. Did you do? Um, I'm pretty sure Andy did Chaos. Did you do um, Angels of Death, or was that? I think that was Andy and Jervis. Mm. Jervis would have done some of it as well. It was me, Andy and Jervis were basically doing the work on the codexes as we'd done with the the Warhammer Army books. And Mm -hmm. and I think that was essentially, that was the team really. 
Nigel might have done a few. He did the Dwarf book for Warhammer, mm-hmm. but I did a lot to, uh, for that as well. Uh, yeah, and I think he did the he did the Plutonium book. I know that. Yeah, it was harder to. You had to. Give, you had to give Nigel quite a tight brief. He he was he, he quite enjoyed writing the background and doing that, but he, he he didn't really enjoy doing the game mechanics. He um he he's, he's he's quite an intuitive designer, and when you get to a co- he doesn't like complexity in games. So once you start having to marry a, the game rules together, so. In, it's an army book. It's got all the rules in it. Have to work with all the rules in the ar- in the in the game. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Plus all the rules in all these army books. That's got, mm-hmm. It starts to get quite, quite complex. It does. Plus the rules in the supplement for the, the magic supplement. And um, I think Nigel liked to uh, he liked to develop little subsystems that stood outside the rules. <laughs> for that reason. Like um, uh, like the Green Knight, for example. What yeah. didn't the Green yeah, Knight like come that. from that book? It did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the last model that Mike Perry made before he lost his arm. I it's didn't know that. Model. Oh my God, it's gorgeous, yeah. right? It stands the test yeah, of time. It does. It's it's a fantastic model, and I um, I, I thought it uh, really showed showed the way. And then of course he lost his right arm, which was in his right handed, so he had to learn to sculpt again with oh. his left arm. And uh, uh, obviously that took him a while. Yeah. Um, but he did it. Yes, uh, he did. Uh, but but I th- but I think he had to change his. I'd say changed his style because you still can't tell. An Allen model from a uh, from a no, Michael model all that exactly. easily, uh, but um, he 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 didn't de- continue to develop that detailed route mm-hmm. that he had with the Green Knight. Oh, again, that model is stupendous. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic thing. Well, uh, I did have a question about we we did mention that a lot of the rules were just the jump from Rogue Trader to Second Edition was more of a tidy up. However, second edition does possess a couple of things that even later editions of 40K, and 40K is sort of famous for being the same from edition to edition to edition, just the way that things interact are different, but a lot of the way that you have ballistic skill versus weapon skill, that is largely the same. One of the big uh, divergences that second edition had from all the other editions of 40K up until they hard rebooted it with what eighth was its hand-to-hand combat system was dramatically different where you rolled a die for each arm um, the character had, be it a a weapon. I I say arm because we used to make that joke because I played Tyranids and Gene Steelers had four arms. So they had four attacks. You rolled four dice (laughs) and then you added the weapon skill and you added other modifiers and you compared them to the other person and the very first couple of grand tournaments I went to were second edition. And I just have vivid memories of discussing with my opponent over the course of the game, just doing that adding up. It's like, here's my dice roll. Now add this. Now add this. Now add this. How many do you have? All right, let's add that. Okay, let's compare. How'd we go? Because that was a bit of a process. Do you know why, A, you shifted to that system and then shifted back? Because in third edition we went back to what it had been in Rogue Trader. Uh, well, Rogue Trader was quite a complex um, hand-to-hand system, wasn't it? I think I think was it must it? have been an attempt to. Yeah, I think I, I think it was. It was basically the same as Warhammer. I think. Um, do you know? I honestly don't remember, Brad. Mm. I don't even remember that system. Well, I must have written it. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure you wrote it, Rick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. I can only imagine that it was an attempt to. Um, 
cope with what was becoming an increasingly complex system where you've got hand-to-hand -hand weapons with different values and factors mm -hmm. and individual models with different factors and, and units fighting rather than individuals. Um, uh, but um, it doesn't sound as if it was entirely successful, does it? Uh, I, I don't remember that. I did the basic rewrite for third edition, mm -hmm. but that was a reboot. Uh, um, yeah. So I, I don't think it was consciously an attempt to go back to first edition for the Antan Combat. It was actually the third edition was actually based on my homebrewed World War Two rules. Oh, really? Uh, uh, do tell. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, me and John Stallard had been playing World War Two wargaming, and um, I'd written a, a homebrewed set of rules, or rather, we'd developed them between us, but I'd written them all, um, and they were designed for slightly larger games. You know, uh, at the I don't say company action or whatever, but it, so it's something a bit bigger because, you know, we wanted two or three tanks on the side. Yeah. Um, and we were playing in 15 mil, uh, in fact, using some of the Skytrax or Command Decision range, which were all in metal. This is way before Flames of War. Um, and in 15 mil, you can't easily identify weapons on individual figures. Right. So when the units started to fight... Um, you wanted an easier way of uh, uh, just resolving the combat. You know, and hand-to-hand -hand combat in World War II isn't that big a deal anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really a... It, it's that... It, it's often very close-range fire mm -hmm. combined with grenades and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it was a little bit more um, uh, easily resolved. Mm -hmm. um, and when it came to doing the new edition of 40K, the, the, the third edition this would be... Uh, which Andy Chambers was going to write. We already had a provisional third edition that was based on the second edition, but tidied up or modified or slightly, probably slightly fiddly-fied, really, knowing what tends to happen with these things. Mm -hmm. You know, But it would have been a tidied up second edition, um, which would have been fine. In many ways, we could have continued to use the same army books and everything. Um, but again, this came from sales. I'm blaming you here. <laughs> Whoops. Um, that the game, people wanted to play games, and it wasn't, you know, we want to sell more toy soldiers, although that was probably what was behind it. It was people wanted to play games, or people are playing games, with more toy soldiers than the rules conveniently allow. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to play with more tanks, they want to play with more troops, they, you know, how it goes. I so do. there was this big hoo-ha in which I, I came in with the proposal for the third edition that was based on the second edition and there was much shuffling of feet and so on and so forth and basically the um, feeling came around that no we want to change the game so you can use bigger armies bigger forces more toy soldiers mm -hmm. and uh, i thought well okay great we've done all this work it seems like a bit of an unnecessary move to me but if we're gonna i i, I, I tend to be quite corporate when we come to these things. I often argue against something, but when we decide to do it, and that's collectively decide to do it, mm -hmm. having had my say, I usually get behind it. You know, it's like a, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, that's that, that's a cap, cabinet responsibility. Yeah. Um, and I and, and always did, and um, so I thought, well, if we're going to do this quote damn fool thing. <laughs> Let's not do it in a damn fool way. Right. Um, let's reconsider this. And, and I thought, well, that third, that 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 World War Two game that John and I have been playing, actually, it almost is what we're describing. Because though we're playing it with 15 mil figures, we're playing it with squadrons of tanks, yeah, armored personnel carriers, mm -hmm. sport weapons, 
companies of troops. You know, it wouldn't, it's, they're not massive games, because especially because you're playing them in 15 mil. So the footprint of the figures is, is relatively small. We can play on a six by four or table quite easily. Um, and certainly an, an eight by six or an eight by five table that we, we had. So I took the basic rules for my World War II game and I just wrote them up as a brief and gave that brief to Andy Chambers. Now, I think Andy had problems with the hand-to-hand -hand rules because he, he couldn't, because my hand-to-hand -hand rules didn't take into account the fact that some of the combatants might be ogres mm -hmm. or giants. You know, they tended to be either Russians or Poles or Germans or mm -hmm. Brits who were not all that different. Um, and so uh, there wasn't quite the elasticity in the game system to, to allow for it. So I think Andy did modify it a little bit, um, quite a bit, in fact. And it was one of the bits that didn't quite work. And I think it subsequently got modified, actually. It did subsequently get modified and rewritten. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but in, in, in broad detail, including the way all the tanks worked and everything, the uh, third edition was based on my World War II rules. That's yeah. hilarious. Especially given that now, uh, you know, John runs Warlord and Warlord makes bolt action. Yeah, uh, uh, which is not based on um, no, not at all. At all but based on the uh, yeah, based on the uh, game that um, uh, Alessio came up with. Right. In point of fact, the rules for tank warfare, armor penetration, are very similar to my World War Two rules. Yes, and they are very similar to what was in Forty K as well. Third edition, yeah, absolutely. So you have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you have a strike value, add a dice. Does it equal the armor value or be better the armor value? If so, by how much or whatever? Go to a subchart. Subchart. Yes. Yeah, that that's that was my World War Two rules, and also 40k, and also bolt action. And yeah. it's, it's how I always do World War Two and vehicle combat because I think it's a nice system, and it's intact. In fact, based on the way Charles Grant did it um, in the 1970-71 rules battle practical war games. Oh, is it? Uh, this is exactly how you do it. Yeah, it's the same way he does it there. Um, except there's no chart at the end. It's If you beat it, it's destroyed. If you don't, it's okay. So it, it's a binary result. Whereas I went in for... Uh, uh, and largely because they wanted a simpler kind of thing. I, I, I just added the um, result chart. I suddenly so had a flashback bit. to the vehicle rules from Rogue Trader in the end of the edition where there was a book that had an outline of yeah. a vehicle and you would Yeah, have targeting a, chart. Yeah, you would have a plastic um a trans yeah. a transparent plastic overlay with a targeting um you know yeah. cross on it and you'd hold it over and you'd roll the dice to see where on the vehicle you hit. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot more engine, complex. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. That's what had happened under Rogue Trader. Things had come along and somebody had a good idea and there'd be a really complex way of resolving something, mm -hmm. but very characterful and interesting. And, uh, but when it comes to using lots of tanks, lots of armored fighting vehicles on the table, you, it's just too complicated. It's great when you've got one, but when you've got a dozen, half a dozen even, mm -hmm. it was just too complex. And that's why, um, in fact, that's one of the things that we... You tidied up for second edition. Um, yeah. Hmm. So um, yeah. So, so yeah, th things have changed, but that, that's that's that was the second to third transition. Was that we need to play 
In fact, it's really it's the same as the first. The first to second transition was we need to allow for bigger games and more toy soldiers. The second to third was exactly the same. We need to allow for bigger games and more transi- mm-hmm. uh, more toy soldiers. Um, it suited the commercial side of the business. It suited sales. Suited them better than it did the uh, as games designers because as games designers, you, the continuity of the game underlying the game mechanic is much more useful. Um, and ultimately, changing it gives you problems with sales too because all of a sudden all your your armillus go out of date every single one it's a single mm-hmm. stroke because out of date uh, yeah and that was never it, popular yeah but it wasn't again it's one of those things where um thinking in the short term not the long term you go ah oh, well we've got a new brand new game oh no wait a minute now all the armillus don't work yeah. and it almost came as a surprise it didn't come as a surprise to those of us in the studio the game design because we <laughs> We had to redo all the get. We had to redo all of those things mm-hmm. pretty quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was that tension really between the, I would say, needs of the business, but also it was the pop. It was it was by popular demand. I mean, it is fair to say that people did want most gamers. Most gamers, probably you or I, have got armies which are way too big to play practical games with. Who me? And that come uh, on, Rick. Yeah, exactly. Never. And that God, I want to put all my toy soldiers on the table. Is a thing, yeah. You know, it is a thing. It is. And when I play war games around at the Perrys, and they've got an eight foot by fourteen foot table, mm-hmm. and we had to, we played the, the cumulation of our big campaign. It's sort of almost like a Gettysburg. It, it was a it was a Gettysburg. It took three days to play. Oof. That table was it was it was. They had so many units of troops on. We had to halve the size of all the units, and halve all the distances. And we we're playing black powder. So normally, black powder is a game where you know, you, you you can get it played in a, in an evening. Yeah, so I was going to say effect, that's that not a table, long game. That's a long game, and in effect, because we halved everything on a table that was six by fourteen, that table was twelve foot by twenty eight foot equivalent. Oh. Yeah, and we had like four or five players aside, that's including crazy. two who could only play by looking through Zoom apps on their <laughs> on the phones. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Uh, well, yeah, I, so you know, I, yeah, I, I do. So, have, so we all want to play. <laughs> we do, we do. Now, I have a question about going to smaller game. Now, I could segue one of two directions. I'll start with this one since we were nominally talking about 40k second edition a second ago. The jump to Necromunda. Now, I know that you were talking about the the ancillary games that that sort of the, that came along that would come. There would be a miniature range or two. For a game, Gorkomorka, Necromunda, Epic 40K, which came out later, um, not to be confused with what we were talking about before. Games like that, more time. Necromunda, was that a project you worked on? Because it was very closely tied to 40K Second Edition. It was, yeah. No, um, we we had a we had a project called Necromunda. Mm-hmm. Which had been worked on in the eighties and was nothing to do with me. Was that it confrontation? Was, um, yeah, confrontation. Well, I, I did write the confrontation rules okay. for Brian. There you go. Um, uh, uh, it, when it was a rewrite of his um, uh, the game he, he did with Tabletop Games, mm-hmm. uh, Laserburn. Um, oh, that's right. The idea behind confrontation was Brian's. It was it was a Brian project, and it had all those characteristics of a Brian project. It was complex. It was deep. It was involved. There was any amount of mm-hmm. um, wacky, wacky, wacky ideas in it, and it had charts all over the place. And as mm-hmm. far as I know, no one ever played it. 
but it was a <laughs> we project. We tried. It was, no, no, I mean, we didn't, I didn't try. I just wrote it up. It was just a job as far mm-hmm. as I was concerned. Uh, and I don't think Brian ever played it, and I don't think any other computer in the studio ever played it, and I don't think anyone involved in the art side ever played it. For Bri- from Brian's point of view, it was a science fiction idea mm-hmm. that he wanted to express. And uh, John Blanche drew lots of really crazy drawings, yeah, sort of mad clown, mm-hmm. clown-based stuff. Oh, it was just very odd. Um, and, and and I'm sure it would have been glorious had it, anyone had the energy and uh, will to finish it but brian was never going to do it because he, mm-hmm. he didn't write things no people did it for him so what we had was all this crazy stuff and brian sold the company so what we had was all this crazy stuff and this idea of the spire mm-hmm. and the uh and, and that that hive world which was quite nicely realized as a world yep um that the idea of a spire with an undercity where uh in fact in, in brian's original concept the whole spire was a fighting zone and it was it was an entire urban combat environment um and i uh, and we had some nice artwork done for it already uh, uh and so I, I looked at it and we needed to do one of the briefs which came down from tom really was we need so much so much product we had to have all this product in a year in order to sell so we needed board games we needed a hobby game we needed at least two hobby games mm-hmm. One would be released at Easter, one would be released in September. That would anchor the sales. And then we'd have board games in between and supplements. It was, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, the ambition was astonishing. And Mm -hmm. the fact that we actually managed to keep it up for a little while was (laughs) was quite an achievement, really. Um, But Necromunda was one of those, let's have another game. You know, we can't do Warhammer every year. We can't Mm -hmm. do 40K every year, but we need something to anchor those two things. Um, the September one being the big one because that was your Christmas sale, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that we had had some work already in terms of Necromunda. We had an idea for it. Uh, you know, we had an idea for the world, the world background, and we had some artwork. So that was, uh, like I say, it gave me something to work with mm-hmm. rather than starting cold. Uh, and I. I looked at the game, what was done for the game, and it was just too mad. But what I you mean the brat gangs and the tech gangs and the and yeah, the mad it, it was clown just all gangs? too mad. It was all too yeah, it was just too crazy. It wasn't very focused. Mm-hmm. So um, what I thought was, but I can use this concept, of the great undercity, mm-hmm. to do what is actually a um, a wild west gang mm-hmm. game. So American Wild West. This is going to be. Cowboys and Indians, if I'm allowed to say that these days, cowboys and Indians in the wild, in, in the wild west, the Earp gang, you know, the mm-hmm. Jess, uh, uh, well, Bill Hickok and all that sort of stuff. Yep. It can all, I, I can kind of work it into that. And um, essentially that's what I did. All the gangs are, are essentially uh, uh, a kind of wild west uh, sort of, rustler gang or, mm-hmm. or a sheriff gang or whatever they're all they're all based on that idea and the um the undercity becomes a kind of uh, uh a kind of uh wild west out in the i don't know, say 60s probably 50s 40s you know mm-hmm. that sort of period where you've got um 
pioneers going out and you've got settlements um, but there's there's badlands in between and so mm -hmm. on and so forth whilst the natives are living in harmony um, in inverted you have to imagine the little inverted commas bunny ears at this point living in harmony with the, their environment yeah. except their environment is this trash it's, it's all the effluvia and filth that's been put down there over the years but nonetheless they do live in harmony with it um and and so on that was the idea and i ran with it and uh, uh you know there are six gangs i think because six is the magic number mm -hmm. it gives you enough to have a fast one a slow one a tough one an intelligent one you know mm -hmm. a techie one you, you work it through you always have one that's a let's say base base type bit of everything yeah um uh, you know, you can see that in Warhammer. You know, your elves oh, yeah. and your dwarves and your yeah, yeah, you get the idea. And I just, I just permed that into the science fiction Wild West environment to create the gangs. And I wrote the stories up and the little bits of text, imagining I was Jack London. You know, I was doing that sort of mm -hmm. that voice, that quite slow, right, uh, rhythmic kind of writing. Yeah. Um, and. Um, and a few other people did bits in the same way. Wayne England actually wrote a really good bit up that was based on uh, the introduction to um, Moby Dick. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's a really lovely bit of writing. And he's, a, he's an artist, of course. Um, and that was Necromunda. Uh, it was probably one of the last things that we did using old-fashioned physical paste-up because um, I remember getting, you know, it's got all those bars down the side mm -hmm. a little bit of engineering bars yep. they were all done they were all outputted as um bromides as a piece of film and then you print them like as a camera camera piece so they're all on bromide paper and they were all cut and pasted into those positions oh that's wild on a, on a big sra one sheet everything was done that way in those days yeah um but we're starting to move to a desktop publishing operation so the text was now produced off a laser printer rather than being uh, sent through a, um, a, a camera, um, an old fashioned kind of uh, uh, sort, sort of affair. Because before that, everything had been done with a photo typesetter mm -hmm. and then outputted as, as long strips of, well, it was like rolls, it was like a toilet paper roll, but of film paper. We, we always refer to them as bromides because you set it with silver bromide mm -hmm. and they stank of bromide. Uh, so, um, yeah, but anyway, we were moving slowly to a desktop operation. But at that time, we didn't quite have the processing power and our printers didn't quite have the joined up technology to be able to go from a screen to print. It took a couple of other iterations. Oh, it's funny yeah. thinking about how things are done now to, to think back yeah. to that. Yeah, well, that dictated how things were done. And similarly, the way the toy soldiers were made and the number of people we had dictated how many, how much variety you had and how many uh, gangs you could have and so mm -hmm. on. Um, yeah. So Brilliant. Uh, so that's how that was done. Well, let's jump the other direction then to the other small scale game. Uh, that being one that later evolved into Black Powder, if I'm understanding this correctly, Warmaster. Okay. So yeah. Warmaster was... It was your baby, wasn't it? Uh, and yeah, well, to be fair, we had an idea for doing because you remember we did Space Marine, which is epic 40k. Mm -hmm. So small scale models. Space Marines were eight millimeters tall, and then you know all the all the tanks and so on and so forth. They they we called it epic, but really it was micro armor. You know, it was the old micro armor hobby. Mm -hmm. And those of us who were war gamers and remember these things, you know, one three hundred scale models mm -hmm. um, were a thing, and that was a hobby in its own right. 
usually for people who wanted to play big battles with tanks. Yeah. And we took that micro hobby, which we'd all played, you know, when we were teenagers to some extent. And we took that micro idea and applied it to 40K and created Epic yep. Space Marine, or Epic 40K, whatever we want to call it. Adeptus Titanicus to start with, I think. Of that scale. So, so, but once we'd done that, the idea of doing it for Warhammer was in the air, you know, as a design concept in the design team. Well, at that time, the design team was quite big. It included all the guys who did role play, all the guys who did the board games, like Stephen Hand. It included people like Richard Halliwell, who did Space Marine. So it was quite, it was a bigger design team than we had subsequently. I mean, subsequently, as I say, for the second edition of 40K, we only had really the three of us. Uh, uh, I, I think they were still doing some role play stuff out in uh, uh, with Flame, but that was a that was a separate but yeah, that was a separate office actually. I can't quite remember when we stopped uh, when we gave up on Flame. It was quite early, but um, we, we had quite a big design team, and we'd sit over coffee and we'd talk about stuff. And the idea of doing Epic Warhammer was there right from the certainly from the late eighties. 80s and Richard Halliwell actually came up with a game, a core game system for it, which used different coloured dice with different numbers on them, uh, which was quite far think uh, yeah, forward thinking in a way. You see a lot of that these days. You do, you know, funny dice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but um, and, he, and he came up with some tentative lists. And the only thing I remember from them was the uh, uh, the Bretonian supergun. At the time, there was something called the there was the Iraq War. The first Iraq War was on, I think, and the uh, was this huge hoo-ha about the Iraqi super gun, which was a a gun the Iraqis had, had, had evolved. It was one of these great big long tubes that was built into a hillside mm-hmm. with firing chambers off to the side. I think the Nazis tried to do a similar thing in World War II, and it, that, then they took that technology and tried to turn it into a, a gun that could fire vast distances, presumably into Israel or something like this. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Um, so it was big in the news, and, and Hal took that idea and created the. Uh, I remember the the Bretonian supergun, this massive gun, and uh, so, so it was definitely in the air. But um, when the company got sold and reorganised, quite overnight, and we lost a lot of staff when we did that, including a lot of the design team, um, it went uh, on the back burner or into the ether. Um, but I always remembered it, and I thought it was uh, it would be worth trying to re introduced that idea as a major game in the future and what happened was i was going i'd set up and it had been agreed that we were going to produce this warmaster as i called it by then mm-hmm. uh game as a big box game as a christmas game as a major game wow. in a box with um plastic pieces and a plastic fortress plastic fortress pieces that would make a uh, and then siege engines so it would be a lot, large part of it would be fortress siege engines, plastic armies, um, and we actually had some of the plastic figures um, started. They'd started doing tooling work on them, and I actually have a piece of tool steel, which has got elves on it. Uh, it's only one half of it because <laughs> they only got round to making one half of it, oh, and I, have, I use it as a paperweight. <laughs> yeah, I've got it as a paperweight. Um, massive piece of, t- I mean, when you think it's about two inches by three inches by an inch and it weighs an absolute ton and it always makes me think you know, you see these models waving massive great hammers about, you know, mm-hmm. that hammer's the size of a breeze block 
and you yeah. think there's no way no way you could pick that up no. it's just not in the anyway anyway uh, we did start so we started and we were starting work and it must have been quite early it was certainly you know christmas time for might have been a bit before then because by then we were doing we we were allowing a bit more time to do our games Mm -hmm. uh and um it was going to be the big box bag game for that year and the sales companies basically got together and decided they didn't want an epic game they'd done very poorly with oh that's right uh well 40 didn't warhammer 40,000 sorry uh epic 40,000 go really poorly i seem to remember Something about it went Chris really Harbour. well up until when we did Titanlies. Yeah, yeah, it might have been. I could, mm. Chris Harbour possibly. I mean, but it would have been all the sales-based staff rebelled, mm-hmm. including the French, who, who are good at it, and <laughs> uh, you know the, the, the Spanish and the Italian. I mean, nobody wanted uh, uh, an epic game. Said so, no, we can't sell epic. We can only sell twenty-eight millimeter toy soldiers. We can only sell twenty-eight millimeter figures. We can't sell anything that isn't a twenty-eight millimeter scale figure. This rapidly became we can't sell anything that isn't a Space Marine, of course. Mm-hmm. But such is the way. And at the time, I'd got this game pretty much designed, at least in outline. And uh, let's say I was quite um, invested in it personally, having designed it. Yeah. Um, but we very quickly had to knock together. A 28 mil game to fill that slot because it was decided to abandon that Warmaster game. Uh, and I had to, we very, very quickly had to knock together something to fill that slot, and that thing was Gorkamorka. I was going to say, which also was did it very Gorka badly. Morka? Yeah, I was going to say, was that Gorkamorka? It was Gorkamorka. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason we did Gorkamorka was because we'd already made, uh, we were already planning on doing an orc. Uh, release and we'd already got some orcs in the bag including the plastic um uh buggy yeah and the plastic bike Mm -hmm. so the reason it had to be something like they used those pieces it had to be something that used something we already had Mm -hmm. i don't think the sales companies appreciated or understood because they don't really they never really it takes a long time to do plastics Mm -hmm. and sales companies don't think in in, in terms of a long time they only think in terms of next week or what they're going to have for their tea um so, uh, uh, so so they didn't really say, we understand this is going to be a problem. They just said, no, we want something else. It's got to be 28 mil, preferably Space Marines, because that's all we can sell. <laughs> um, uh, 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 but we hadn't had those all things. So I briefed out that game and we did Gorka Morka, um, which I still think actually had a lot going for it, particularly in terms of the background. It was a lot of but fun. But it was never going to be. It was a lot of fun, but it it, it, it kind of was a, a gr- huge pain to do, and a lot of the joy went out of the out of it because the, the the basic idea for the game was quite fun. I didn't I, I I really struggled to write it, and I handed it over to Gav Thorpe, I think, and Gav Thorpe kind of did a job on it. But by then it was, you know, this is the deadline, this is the game, this is what needs to be done. There wasn't much time for this to be expanded. Or for us to find out which bits were the great bits and we worked well, and which bits could be dropped. You know, it was a little bit of a of a uh, design on the fly, really. Yeah. Um, and I think that showed, and certainly the figure design uh, was, was done very, very quickly. Anyway, Gorka Morka became the game. Warmaster got put back on the back burner, but I'd already done the game, so I sort of 
possible. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Can, can I do this game as a an Easter slot game? You know, not such a not a not a, such an important game, but a game that we can release at um, Easter time, and it, and it'll it will fill a, a sales slot. And, and grudgingly, that <laughs> mm-hmm. was agreed. Um, and I did a lot of work on the armies, on getting trial pieces made and putting them through production to make sure we could make them. That was key. If we couldn't make them in metal, couldn't do it. Yeah. At cost, it was going to be a problem. So I talked to the guy who was one of the factory managers at the time. We put through a whole series of tests. We made the models, and they worked, and it was all fine. Uh, and I wrote the game up, and I worked pretty much out on my own. Uh, Alessio helped me, um, and um, Stefan Hess, a uh, Warhammer player who I, who I knew and got, got to know, he helped me a lot um, doing playtesting. So to some extent, it was a Rick project. And though it was done with the studio, it didn't come from the studio, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, even the figure design everything, I was very much driving all that. Um, and it was all it, it all came, it, it was all good. It was produced, went out. Sales companies were a bit iffy because it was an epic. Made little attempt to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worst thing was we had real problems in manufacturing because even though I'd gone through all those testing processes, they found in the end they had problems casting it, and that was a, that was really a problem mm-hmm. because it suddenly skewed all the costings. And as a result, the blister packs, which had to be a blister pack is a unit mm-hmm. for if you play I see it for obvious reasons. Um, so we couldn't drop a piece. It had to be six pieces. So we had to keep putting the price up and that started to make it expensive. Yes. And it, it kind of it kind of killed it a bit, really. But as a game, it worked incredibly well and became very popular with what you know it created its own niche it became it a very a very um uh a much much played and much enjoyed game by a small number of people as it turned out it wasn't enough people to be able to sustain it as a game for games workshop oh. and i think the way that sales went is it a space marine no is it not 28 million it's not well we don't want to bother with it. yeah you know there was an, a large element of not wanting to sell it and the army's did take up a lot of space because uh, they were all unique because mm-hmm. they were all 10 mil so in every army had to have so many units so mm-hmm. every unit had to have so can you imagine how much space this took up on the racks oh it was yeah. quite a lot of space i remember it in the metal yeah, room because it took up a lot yeah yeah it did it was a lot and a lot of work casting and of course the game was conceived as being plastic largely mm-hmm. so there was never really there was never the expectation we'd be making everything in metal and then there was the oh well this game is dead because we're not making any new stuff for it so you make more stuff for it it just mm-hmm. makes the problem worse it does uh, so uh, warmaster was a little bit what it was was the right game at the wrong time yeah games workshop was progressing to a point whereby it was increasingly selling one thing warhammer 40k mm-hmm. or a limited selection of things uh the sales companies were very reluctant to take on anything that wasn't uh, compatible with that 28 mil 40k even warhammer was uh, a hard sell for a long time although mm-hmm. i think it was still okay in the, 90s. the 96 warhammer that would be the fifth edition did very well it did uh 
yeah but but by the time we got to 2000 it started it was the 2000 was the next one it started to become a bit of a hard sell and um uh, and subsequently very hard sell and it going down to almost nothing we um we had a a, a brief exception with lord of the rings game mm-hmm. you know that really took off and did very well and again that was something i was uh, very pleased with and again it was a game i did so and with lesio in fact um but that was really an exception that in many ways proves the rule if you see what i mean yeah it had the massive backing of the films it had the massive backing of tolkien there was uh the uh pot work behind it the pot work made a vast difference tv advertising oh so yeah, yeah it, it it was a it, it, yes it proved you could do something that wasn't 40k but only in a very very specific way um uh and uh you know not in a way that could be easily replicated uh so 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 warmaster yeah it it, it struggled the the origins of Warmaster, the, the actual game rather than the concept, were um, came in a way from uh, uh, watching people playing Blood Bowl, which has a turnover concept, you know, mm-hmm. roll until you fail. Yep. Which I thought was an interesting mechanic, and um, that's Stu Jervis's uh, mechanic. And then watching the um, display at the Gettysburg uh, uh, Battlefield Museum, oh, uh, which nice. I imagine you've been to. Oh yeah. You know, it's got that big display, mm-hmm. and you sit down and you watch it in the theatre, and it's like a massive. Uh, uh, I would say it's epic scale because it's actually smaller than that, but it's like a, a 3D map with lights on it, and you follow the battle as it evolved. Um, and I, I just watched that, and I thought, you know, that if that were a war game, conceptually top down, you can see as how the manoeuvre. It's not happening on a my unit will charge that unit basis. No. Or even I can see those guys, let's move over their bases. It's on a, right, we need to move to that hill to occupy it, to secure that position. Meanwhile, these units have to move into this position to secure the centre. What do you mean you've you've accidentally wandered off onto the wrong hill, which is what <laughs> happened to Gettysburg? Yeah. Creating a gap. Creating a gap in the middle through which the enemy army happens to be advancing because that was their order. They, they weren't necessarily taking advantage. They were just advancing and, hey, we're in a gap. We're through the lines. Mm-hmm. And then the Union forces had to plug that gap with an emergency. It's almost like a, a, a one of the, um, I can't remember the names of the commanders, I'm sorry, but uh, one of the commanders basically said to his AD, ADC, you, you get that unit into formation to move that gap. And, it, and he... He tried to do it, but on the way, he, he, he actually found a unit that was retreating because they thought they were being advanced upon and got them to turn around and fight. And they plugged the gap whilst the other unit got into position. So it was a real, you know, that's that's not a typical war game, is it? No. But that's how Warmaster works. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, individual commanders tell things to do things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they go off piste. You know, you, you give them an order to do one thing and they do another. Mm-hmm. Um and you can sometimes take a commander, put it with the unit and say, follow me, you know, for goodness sake, just do this and they will do it. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's that story that it, of bigger battles and um, uh, that got me on that um, on, on, onto that line. And then I started reading about other battles, often 18th century battles where you get similar things happening. And um, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, Frederick the Great's battles, for example, you, I, th- I think Colin is one where you get units suddenly appearing over the hill and uh, other, uh, and not knowing what's going on and you get similar things in the crimea in the you know the famous charge of the light brigade mm-hmm. 
um, you know, where, where the, the the order comes through, take the guns. What guns? Must be those guns. And you charge the wrong guns. <laughs> you know, uh, losing your entire brigade in the process. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that's that that was what inspired me to do Warmaster. It was reading about larger battles and battles from the top down, rather than how does this unit drill? How does it make a formation? Oh, it's, it's got a range of this. It can move at this speed over a certain number of minutes. Well, yeah, you might, but that's not how battles actually evolved. You know, the exactly. fact that this man could march at this pace didn't mean that he was marching at that pace to good purpose all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I kind of almost reflects that. And in turn, I took that mechanic and it was actually Jervis that did it. We were, we were playing... We were playing big Napoleonic games around at the Perrys on that 8 by 6 by 14 foot table. And we, I can't remember what rules we were using. It might have been Shaco. But we were playing conventional war games rules with big armies. And the, we weren't getting to play the games in time. You know, it was midnight and the armies just got into range. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, you know, it wasn't really working terribly well for us. So Jervis came up with the idea. He said, you know, what would work really well with this? No, no, no tell us, Jervis. Warmaster would work really well with this. I'll tell you what, I'll do a bit of tinkering. So he went and he actually converted the Warmaster basic stats into stats we could use with 28mm models. And because we didn't want to be removing models, because in Warmaster you remove a whole stand, mm -hmm. and there are only three stands in a unit, um, we didn't want to be doing that, so we just used casualty markers instead. Said, no, there are three. A, a unit can take three wounds. Use casualty markers to show the, what would be the number of stands removed in Warmaster. Uh, and and I give every unit three hits, as opposed to having three stands in Warmaster. Mm -hmm. uh, and there you go. Uh, and if you look at the stats for Warhammer, and you look sorry Warmaster, and you look at the stats for Black Powder, essentially that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, the, the the stats for a unit in in Black Powder are the number of attacks something would have were it a full size unit in Warmaster, and so on. Yeah. And the command system is similar. And it's, uh, you, it's essentially the same, in fact. Um, except we, we couldn't do this thing. In, in Warmaster, you give a unit an order. And if you're successful, you move it. And then you can give it another order. And then you can move it again. Well, when you're moving three stands at a time, that's practical. When you're moving units of 20 or 30 models, some of which are single-based, I hasten to add, mm -hmm. or which are based in multiples, you know, three on a base or whatever, you know, for, for another game. You can't do that. It will take forever. So the Jervis just said, well, say what you want to do up to three moves and do that thing. And that's the ascent, That's the key to Black Powder. It's say what you want to do because it immediately turns the game into something that's a mate's game, yeah. not a competition game. Exactly. Whereas Warmaster is quite a good competitions game. <laughs> it is. But In fact, there was it, just the big uh, Warmaster competition last weekend. There was, mm -hmm. there was, yeah, and uh, and so I recognise many of the players as well. Mm -hmm. They were uh, the guys who used to play Warmaster back in the day, and I continued to play Warmaster at competition level as well for a few years after I left Games Workshop. It's the only Games Workshop game I played um, after after I left, um, uh, and I've still got armies. I've still got all my armies for Warmaster and Warmaster Agents. Um, yeah, I was quite uh, I was quite proud of Warmaster. There are a few things that didn't quite work in the initial game mechanic mm -hmm. because I was determined to be novel and not just crib stuff off Warhammer mm -hmm. and in the end there were a few things that I realized worked quite well in Warhammer and I really should crib <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it did get a bit of an update but um, uh, you know with the we did updates through the Fanatic magazine yeah 
Uh, uh, yeah, but, yeah, I think it became a very good playable game in the end. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, yeah, game. I'm still very proud of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it was quite. I think the the system, although as I've described it, you know, the ideas came from one place and the game mechanic came from another. As I've described it, I think it was quite innovative. It was mm. an original. I can't think of a game system that worked quite that way. Um, DBA worked with a PIP system. So you rolled dice and you generated a number of pips, mm -hmm. which you then used to make maneuvers and do things. So in a, in a way, it was not dissimilar to that, I, I, I guess. You know, it has the concept of not being able to just move once with every unit every turn. It's mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 sort of ordered movement. But the trouble with that PIP system is it, is it makes you think. You generate your pips. And then you go, mm, how am I going to use these pips? Mm -hmm. And you then spend forever working out. Yes. And I've seen players do this, working out what you're going to do before you do a damn thing. And umming and ahhing over it. Well, with Warmaster, it's the opposite. You you make a decision to do something, and it's a risk. That's right. So every move is a gamble. So you kind of have to, the thing you have to do first is decide where the, you have to take the gambles. That's right. What's the most important thing to do and do and it. That's the best part the decision, about that game. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and then the next move, your decision is predicated on what's happened before, whether you've succeeded or not. So you're having to constantly think rather than make every, your mind up about how you're going to do things at the start. You have to have a broad plan, but you have to then see how you can make it work. And that's true of Black Powder as well. Yeah. Well, Rick, we have been going... So we have been going for two hours, and I'm about have, a third and, of the way through my official questions list. So maybe we'll have to do this again sometime. <laughs> However, shall, shall. my time is my time is up. I'm afraid I'm being uh, uh, luncheon is, is is being contemplated oh. at this neck of the woods. Well, bedtime is contemplated at this end. Uh, but I, before I it is. <laughs> before we get to that, there is one question that I absolutely positively don't want to miss this time around, and that is okay. You have dropped over the years, and you've been on this show. You've dropped, you know, some fairly large bombs just in passing, and you just go, and, you know, as someone listening, you go, wait, what? Warmaster was supposed to be a plastic box. What? Things like that. Yeah. Were there game concepts that you were part of, or that you had up your sleeve, or was just a just a little something kicking around in the back of your head? that you wanted to do when you were at workshop that never got done? I feel like there uh, might be yeah. something floating around out there. I would love to hear some of these ideas, sure. if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Oh, well, very quickly, I mean, I always wanted to do a spaceship game. And in fact, the Rogue Trader rules originated in a spaceship game. That's right. Then later on, uh, Hal, Richard Halliwell, he designed a proto-spaceship game. But it never quite worked because Hal, Hal was very... Um, Hal, Hal later became a um, computer games designer. Mm -hmm. And he's quite me mechanistic. If you think of Space Hulk, it's quite a mechanistic game. It is. And Hal likes games to be games, whereas I like games to be narratives to a mm -hmm. large extent. And uh, Hal used to take the piss out of me a bit for not, you know, really playtesting stuff and getting it mechanically very tight. But to me, that was less important than making it exciting and playable and mm -hmm. enjoyable. But how it had to be mechanistic. And he started designing this spaceship game that used um, a kind of real um, astrophysics. <laughs> and, the, and the spaceships were always spinning around and flying off in all directions. And it was almost impossible to play because everything just disappeared off the top. I'm going to just use minimal thrust on my left vector. <laughs> Boom, you, you spun off into the nearest star. I'm yeah. sorry, oh, okay. 
it was a bit like that. So we never came to anything. Um, but later on, um, as soon as I'd written 40K, I thought, well, you know, that spaceship game was always there. And as 40K developed a character, I could almost visualize the spacecraft being these old wrecks that are propelled mm-hmm. through space by um, psychic oarsmen who are beating to a psychic drum, oh. almost like ancient galleys. Yeah. They're being driven through the warp by almost this power. And the Marines are fighting off demons and you know, all this sort of thing. And I kind of had that vision of a spaceship game. And um, normally it was Battlefleet Gothic. But uh, uh, meanwhile, Andy, Ch- Andy Jones wrote a spaceship sh- game that got released as Space Fleet, yeah. which was the spaceships were made for a different game. You know, they were made for a 40K spaceship game. Yeah. But and we had them. And what? At the time, they were talking about selling simple games into high street stores, mm-hmm. uh, W.H. Smith's in Cambridge mm-hmm. is a bookseller. You know, games for youngsters mm-hmm. in high street stores. And they bought it. Yep. Uh, and, yeah. Andy Jones got tasked with making them. What he did is we took games we already did and already had in concept and he cut them down. Mm-hmm. So the Blood Bowl was cut down into some, I can't remember what it was called. It was a Blood Bowl. It was like game. Dungeon Bowl or something. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. Um, there was a, I can't remember, there was a Space Marine type game, mm-hmm. Space Marines. And there was, um, uh, and there was Space Fleet. And Space Fleet was just used these two, or one, I think, one design of spaceship in two colors to make yeah. a spaceship game. It was very, That's very right. simple. Use the dice box to determine uh, results. You, it was mm-hmm. the, the inside lid, I think, was divided into lot of, like nine lines, it nine was. sectors, like yeah. nine sectors. And you roll the dice, and depending on where they landed, it made a difference. It was mm-hmm. clever. But anyway, Andy Jones put that together. Andy was a sales guy, really. He, he joined the uh, uh, design studio, but he came from sales. And he was given, he did special projects like that. Um, so, you know, there were loads of spaceship games about, so I didn't really feel I had the opportunity. And then later in the 90s, you know, it, the game was always in the back burner. There will always be a spaceship game. Well, when that opportunity to do it came up i was by then sort of running i was i was kind of running the studio and i was part mm-hmm. of the exec team and um and me i didn't really have the opportunity to do it it was more difficult for me to do um design work yeah and we were trying to build a design team so in a way i had to step aside so i briefed what we wanted out of that game battle gothic yep and gave it to Andy Chambers, who had not designed a game on his own up until that point. He'd kind of done work with um, at the Epic system. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, he'd be, he's quite experienced by then. And it was probably, we were almost moving, I could see we were moving into a time when we were not going to be doing new games. Mm-hmm. It was just going to be what we did forever. And um, so I thought it was Andy's, probably Andy's chance to do a game with Games Workshop that was his own. And actually, that thing that did prove to be the case. I don't think he did anything after that that was unique, uh, that was not his own. You know, he worked on 40K. Yeah. But um, I don't think new games would. After that, the only new games we did were in the sort of specialist games mm-hmm. fanatic, where they were deliberately being sold not through our main channels. Mm. Um, so Andy did Battlefleet Gothic. And one of the briefs I gave him was we couldn't actually do we couldn't afford to put cardboard in so could he not do cardboard counters which he promptly ignored yes he did so he did. <laughs> the he torpedoes did. Yeah. Were, and fighters were cardboard yeah, counters. counters yeah 
we were really up against the costings at that stage of the company's history. Uh, anyway, so spaceship game, I never got to do, but I always had on the back burner. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did do spaceship games, so that's yeah. not an example of a, of a game that never appeared. When we did Necromunda, that was conceptually going to be Right, it's the 40k universe, and it's a big place, and there are lots of planets, and some of those planets are uh, connected to the Imperium, but only tangent, only slightly. Yeah. You know, they're primitive worlds, or or perhaps they've only just been discovered, and they have unique civilizations. And there are worlds that are occupied by orcs, and there are worlds that are uh, kind of um, occupied by Eldar, uh, and in particular, there are these floating craft worlds that are occupied by Eldar. Mm -hmm. And who knows how many other things there are. It's a big universe, but these are all capsular concepts. If we go to that world, it exists really independent, independently mm -hmm. of the Space Marines and the Imperium. And, it, you know, they might have a relationship with it, but they might not. Gorkamorka is a world like that. It is. Uh, as is Necromunda. Necromunda has a relationship with the Imperium that's a bit stronger. Um, but people were forever trying to get me to put Space Marines into Necromunda. And I was going, no, it's, it's got to be, yeah. it exists, it's its own thing. Don't you understand? That's what yeah. makes it exciting and interesting. And maybe it means it's temporary. Hey, look, it's Necromunda. It's a game. But it's still, it's its own thing. Gorkamorka, same. Gorkamorka exists in a world that's orcs. It shows an orc society and how an orc society can be its own thing. Um, and I think it did that very well, even if the game didn't prove to be successful in long term. Um, that concept was nominally going to be run out for at least two other things. Um, one of which would be uh, a craft world. Imagine the Eldar craft world that had gone feral. Oh. So a craft world mm -hmm. that had kind of exists in space. It's sort of connected to the other craft worlds via the web, but it's lost some point some point it's lost civilization it's perhaps been impacted by something maybe a tyranny ship i don't know so it's been impacted by or maybe a meteor or something and been corrupted or changed you know it could have been chaos it could be it could have been nothing it could have been just a elder elder so you've got a, a capsular society that's based on eldar but gone feral uh with all that implies um and the craft world itself has become in parts a jungle, interior jungle, but it's all interior spaces. So that was one idea we had. That's and I think brilliant. that would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have flown really. I think that would have flown probably better than Gorkamorka. Because mm. Gorkamorka, there was this element of, oh, some people don't like orcs. And you go, yeah, well, okay, some people don't like orcs. Some people don't like space marines, you know. Um, <laughs> Only a couple. Uh, so that was, uh, not many, uh, but you know, that was an idea. But then that concept of taking a core set of rules, the Necromunda set, and pushing them out into use them as the basis for skirmish war games, and there always would be skirmish war games, Necromunda, Gorkamorka, as a generic type that we could then roll, you know, uh, roll into any environment was there. And that could have, to my mind, that was how 40k and Warhammer should have developed. Yeah. You know, your core games are there, they're solid, they're supported, but they don't have to change. You don't have to redo them every so every you know every week by <laughs> the way it is these days. Mm -hmm. You don't have to change the core game. Yes, yes, you improve it when you need to. You make changes as you need to, and you you evolve the game if you feel there's a, a pressing need to evolve it. But it's there, it's stable. But on top of that, Games Workshop will do 
a skirmish game every year, a different one that will do different things. And the models won't be available forever. And we know they won't. It doesn't matter because oh, there'll be a new brilliant. one every year. And the others will perhaps go into our back catalogue and maybe we'll re-release them at some point and do new things for them. Who knows? And we'll do bits and pieces and maybe we'll have campaign games that maybe push things together. And, and I, you know, that was the concept for supporting Warhammer 40k that I had. But that got thrown out and replaced by the sales-led, let's have more Space Marines mm-hmm. and let's redo 40k forever. So, you know. That, that's where the diff, that's where we diverged. Yeah. <laughs> and when we diverged, I kind of I kind of went with the diversion. It's fine, yeah. you know. We build that, but I tried to still do all the projects on the side. And yeah. For a while, some of them succeeded, but in the end, they all fell. Fell to. Interestingly enough, I think Games Workshop now has returned to a little bit of that concept. They have. Uh, but um, it just shows you really, it wasn't a bad idea. No, it wasn't. Perhaps we weren't ready for it. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, and, and you know that's that, so that was that was a uh, uh, that was the one that perhaps was going to be next in that series. Oh, of, uh, that's such a shame! Uh, I would have loved that game. Yeah. But but we could have done it for everything. So the core Monocle Under rules support any underlying skirmish gang-based war games, if you like. Mm-hmm. So it worked for Gork and Walker. They would work equally well for those feral Eldor. And they would have worked for anything, you know. That's that space marine world that's become cut off, and the space marines themselves have evolved and changed in some way. It might have been one of those un- unnamed chapters. Perhaps they were sent out in the past, rather than being stricken and destroyed. They were stricken and banished. You're forever banished from the Imperium. Go, go out. You know, you know how I just read the oh, oh, yeah. judges get sent out to you get sent out to administer justice into the realm beyond the Imperium, into that chaos, band of chaos, that realm of terror. And your Space Marine chapters 10,000 years later have changed into something else. Not become chaos, but still fighting the good fight. Mm -hmm. What are they? What are they like? What are they doing? And chaos always lends itself to that gang-based idea as well. So, you know, the ideas are easy, (laughs) if I may say so. I was going to say, maybe for you, not for all of us. but Yeah, the ideas are easy. It's just realizing it is it was it was the trick and you know i think the idea behind gorka walker was quite easy it, it just it, it was never quite i didn't have time to mature and realize yeah. and the expectations placed upon it were too high because it was always compared to 40k in space marine and wow. that's the essential problem games workshop had when i was you know there in from the mid 90s onwards that they couldn't sell anything that wasn't 40k in space marines mm-hmm. it was just simply because you had to compare the way the company was behaving, the sales were going year on year on year. And every time you released 40K in Space Marines, the sales went up. And every time you tried to release something else, they were never as big. Well, guess what, guys? It doesn't have to be the same year on year. Some years, you know, you just consolidate what you're doing. But that's not the way it works when you're a public limited company. No. No, um, in fact, that is exactly right. When it it was at that point, it was public. Well, the second we start talking about uh, global sales and uh, public trading, I think it's time to probably call it a day, Rick. We've been at it for two plus yeah. hours, and uh, I think we'll have to try yeah, this pub's, again. The pub's open here. Maybe in another yeah. twelve months, we'll uh, we'll see if. Uh, I'll look forward to it, Brad. <laughs> 
can't wait. I cannot wait. As always. Well, again, Rick, I know you're super busy. You've been on quite a few podcasts and you've been interviewed in a ton of places I've seen recently. Thank you so much for making the time. I, I really do appreciate it. As always, it's always a pleasure having you on and just hearing the little nuggets of gold uh, and oh, just connecting dots in my head to all the things I loved when I was younger and love now. It's uh, it's fantastic. Again, thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Brad. And uh, yeah, until the next time. There you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I again, to everyone who reached out and said, hey, we haven't had Rick on in a while. This is for you uh, and, and for me. But uh, if you have suggestions for the show, sneers, jeers, abuses, or anything that you would like to communicate, uh, please go to Facebook, look up Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you message the page, you're guaranteed a response by me. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, I will message. Just remember, I am in Australia, so there is a little bit of a time lag. I will get to you, I promise. Thank you again, uh, everyone who's listening today. Some of you, uh, it may be your first time. If it is your first time, please look back. Rick's been on the show many times in the past, and every one of those conversations has been just as good as this one. Uh, and there's lots of other great stuff in there as well for you to check out. But when I start talking about past episodes of Cast Dice, I think it's probably about that time to call it a day. And as our buddy Casey always says, when you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. And that track I hold.